Hello and welcome to Shoot the Breeze, where we take a nostalgic look at a random football magazine from the past. I'm Andy Smith, aka Scott's Footy Cards on Twitter, and with me is Tom Brogan. Hello. In each episode, we'll invite a special guest to join us in trawling through the magazine and discuss anything contained within it. This could be anything from an article, to a photograph, to a competition, to an advert. Basically, if it's in it, then we'll talk about it. So sit back and let's shoot the breeze. Wriggles clear. Might just get the chip and he does, he's scored! Oh, what a great And this week our guest is Eric Samuelson. Eric is the former finance director and CEO of AFC Wimbledon and he's also the author of the book All Together Now, The Extraordinary Story of AFC Wimbledon. Eric, thanks very much for coming on. Pleasure, thank you. Yes, thank you very much for joining us, Eric. So this week we're looking at a copy of Match from the 18th of April 1988. So just looking at the, the cover... So John Aldridge of Liverpool's on the cover and uh, the headlines are exclusive semi-finals colour action, King John, Aldridge double denies Cluffy, Don's dream comes true, uh, all in your up-to-date football weekly and there's match facts and there's a Reading souvenir poster inside. So the main picture is of John Aldridge celebrating the second of his two goals against Nottingham Forest in the FA Cup semi-final of 1988 and there's a picture at the bottom of Dennis Wise stabbing home the winner for Wimbledon against Luton to send the Dons into the cup final. And uh, we always kind of look at the other prices uh, on the, the magazine. So Singapore, it's $2.60. Spain, 195 pesetas. And an uh, era, uh, 66, that'd be 66 pence. 66 pence, including VAT. And it's uh, 45 pence uh, match. So... Uh, Eric, do you ha- did you ever buy match or shoot it in for that when you were when you were a boy? Um, I bought it for my children. Um, right. Although, to be honest, it was a bit after that. This was um, my elder son would have been eight at the time, so he's just getting into that sort of thing. So I think I was an occasional buyer. Um, and of course, once uh, once he'd finished with it, I was allowed to flip through it. <laughs> I don't particularly remember this 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 copy, so I think it's probably I probably started buying it. This was his first season supporting Wimbledon, and then that season they won the FA Cup, which, you know, when you're eight, you think that's that's normal. Yeah. Um, I think, as he realised later, there's a lot of pain to come in supporting Wimbledon. <laughs> uh, we moved on to reading about what actually happens in football, and he and his younger brother um, got into this sort of stuff. So so what, what about other magazines, so like say, Charles Buckins before, or Goal magazine, would you have, would you have got any of those when you were a, a youngster yourself? I did because Charles Buchan, uh, I'm Although I was at AFC Wimbledon, I'm from um, Sunderland, and right. Charles Charlie Buchan was a renowned uh, Sunderland player. Mm-hmm. But Charlie Charlie Buchan's football annual was in my Christmas stocking every year. Well, not in the, not literally, um, not big enough for that. Along with, and we previously talked about it, uh, my copies of the Bruins and the Woolly Woolly Annuals. So um, yeah, I, I particularly remember that. And it was a year also when um, he used to buy candy cigarettes and get yeah. uh, <laughs> players, which is why, for reasons I can't explain, I came to be a very long distance, never seen them play, heart supporter. 
right? And I have no idea why, but, uh, but from those candy cigarettes, that's, that's where it started. Excellent. All right, so we'll we go into the magazine then. So the first few pages are all about the FA Cup semi-finals of that weekend. So two pages two and three is a two-page spread uh, on the Liverpool-Nottingham Forest game at Hillsborough from 1988. And the headline is Old Old Way to Wembley. And uh, there's a picture there of John Aldridge scoring uh, the goal. A picture of Steve McMahon uh, celebrating with Nigel Spackman. So, yeah, so it was Liverpool in the red strip, Nottingham Forest in white, black and white. Liverpool were heading for a double that season. It looked as if they were, on, they were well on their way at that point. It was it was a done deal, I think, in yeah. everybody's minds that uh, they, they, were, they were a frighteningly good team. And uh, it was relatively new because the reason we were supporting Wimbledon was my boys, although I'm from Sunderland, my boys wanted to watch a local team. So we were new to Wimbledon and I was delighted they didn't choose Chelsea or Spurs because as a northerner, I had a struggle to support one of the big teams. <laughs> um, but uh, Wimbledon was fine because they have the same tradition as Sunderland of battling against the odds and being a bit awkward and a bit difficult. So that was fine. Uh, and I was worried for my son's state of mind um, if we went to Wembley and lost. But, uh, but yeah. as you know, that didn't happen. But I'm jumping ahead. So I think they beat Forest 2-1. Um, I, I know Aldridge scored one of them. I can't honestly remember the others. And, um, but it was, it was just inevitable. Uh, mm. They were going to do the double, which was a relatively rare event when I was younger. I think Spurs did it in 61, and that was uh, an earth-shaking thing to have happened. It was round about the time Liverpool were dominant, and since then it's become much more commonplace. Yeah. So we go over the page again to look at the other semi-final. I think we're probably more interested in Eric. Well, just just before we do, I just want so the top left corner with John Aldridge scoring. So it shows you it from a face on, facing into the crowd from the goal. And I just love, I love a crowd reaction to a goal, especially when it's the team that's just conceded the goal because you you, you can just I don't know where we can make them out, but the dejection on the faces the flicking of the fingers and things like that. I, I just love that sort of um, lack of emotion, or emotion, <laughs> but a lack of emotion sort of thing. Yeah, I this cup shit because at the time when you're when you're the supporting the goal-scoring team, it's the last thing you look at. Well, there'll be a few who'll start pointing and waving fingers at the opposition fans, but the majority are just ecstatic and yeah. up off the ground. And it's only later you come to look at these things. It's become a bit of a... Is the right word a trope nowadays that yeah. when they televise games like like last night, um, they spend an awful lot of time focusing on the on the angst uh, of the fans, mm. whether they're winning or losing team. To be honest, I'd rather look at later. I want to watch the game at the time. <laughs> Come back and see how, how miserable or ecstatic they were later. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. If you look on the opposite page, you can see um, from the same view, but this time it's it's Spurs that have scored. And it's quite a different reaction you're getting from the crowd that time. So, you know, it's like the ups and downs of football just shown in those two pictures there. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Both semi-finals were played in the same day, Saturday the 9th of April 1988. Uh, Liverpool beat Nottingham Forest 2-1 at Hillsborough in front of 51,627 fans. John Aldridge scoring twice, the 12th minute with a penalty and the 51st minute, and Nigel Clough got Forest goal in the 66th minute. So if we go to pages four and five, and the headline, Don's Dream Comes True. So Wimbledon beat Luton Town 2-1 at White Hart Lane, in front of a crowd of 25,963, 
and Mick Harford scored first for Luton in 48 minutes. John Fashnew equalised with penalty on 56 minutes and the winner came from Dennis Wise on 80 minutes. Uh, and so here on uh, these two pages here, there's a couple of photographs of the, of the goals. I remember, uh, I mean, it, it must be one of the lowest ever crowds for an FA Cup semi-final. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the capacity at the time was, but I guess it was in the 40,000s. Yeah. And, it, and a crowd of 25,000. I went down to buy tickets for the game at Bar Lane um, uh, the morning they became available. And I, I, I forget the exact details, but let's say they're on sale at 10 o'clock. I got there at half past eight. And I was about 20th in the queue. And that just... That just isn't how it would have been at any of the other the really big London teams. Um, but we got tickets, my wife and my two sons, indeed some friends all went to um, to White Hart Lane for that game. Uh, and I think it's it's worth sort of looking back on on who Wimbledon were at the time. They'd gone, they'd only got into the Football League in 1977. And in those days, for the younger listeners, um, you actually got into the Football League through a voting system. You didn't, you didn't. Um, win a promotion that didn't follow for some years. And Wimbledon uh, run a massive campaign, a very successful campaign entitled something like Don's Four, Division Four. And Workington were the unlucky club to be voted out to let them in. So in 1977 and 10 years later into the first division then what became the Premier League. And the season after that, uh, as we'll come to in a little while, winning the FA Cup. It's an astonishing story of a rise from, you can't say from nowhere, they were a very big non-league club, uh, through to Wembley and winning the FA Cup and beating, I don't know, were Liverpool the best team in Europe at the time? They certainly were, if not one of the top two or three. So that's the context of this club with this tiny support that couldn't even sell out White Hart Lane, let alone Wembley, uh, for an FA Cup semi-final against, well, Luton, who are were at the time a much bigger club in many ways, but nonetheless, I suppose, not a massively supported team. I, I remember the game well. It, it's famous for, um, and I love this, the game where Bobby Gould actually drove a minivan with the players in and was stopped at the entrance because they wouldn't believe who he and they were, which I think is in the great tradition of, of up and at him and also uh, up yours of, uh, of Wimbledon and the way they behaved. Which I, I thought uh, a lovely man, Bobby Gould. I met him later, and I thought that was a classic bit of, I think, stage management. Really, they didn't need to do that, but they chose to, and creating a team spirit. Yeah, it's definitely in line with the uh, the image of Wimbledon that everybody sees from the outside, isn't it? It's, it's definitely in line with that. That's a, that's a brilliant Absolutely. story. And uh, Wimbledon, I mean, uh, in that particular game, Mick Harford, of course, who who went on to manage um, Wimbledon later, uh, scored. Uh, I've forgotten the exact minute, but yes, early in the second half. But Wimbledon had missed several shots in the first half and should have been, if not out of sight, then pretty comfortable by half time. And then they won a penalty, which was a, I think it was a foul on, no, it was a handball. Hand it was a handball. And uh, Fash took a penalty that's very unfashionable nowadays. And, I mean, with the Europe Euros going on right now, you've seen a whole range of penalties. The one that won the game for Italy against Spain, if you watch that one, yeah. which the guy just walked up, stuttered, and then strolled the ball into the yeah. goalie's left-hand corner of the net, was it was the fashion penalty. And nowadays, I mean, that's unusual, isn't it? Nowadays, you hammer it, you just smash it as hard as you can. 
Um, but Fash just walked up, strolled up, looked one way, hit it the other, and it was one all. Yeah. And then the winner came from a classic Wimbledon long throw down the line, hooked into the middle by Alan Cork, and then came, as the picture shows in match, Dennis Wise sliding in to um, to poke it underneath uh, the goalie's body. Um, struggling to remember the goalkeeper's name, but I think that was the year Luton won the Football League Cup, and right. that goalie saved a penalty. So let's just have a look at the teams then. So Luton Town, uh, goalkeeper's Andy Dibble. Absolutely, Andy Dibble, yeah. Tim Breaker, Ashley Grimes, Darren McDonough, Steve Foster, Mal Donaghy, Danny Wilson, Brian Steen, Mick Harford, Mark Steen, and Rob Johnson. Quite a strong Luton team, a lot of names that, that are well known. Yeah, I mean, the Steen brothers were, were very successful. Um, Dibble was, became famous for his penalty save in the league. Uh, Mick Harford was um, a terrifying man, both on and off the pitch in terms of his physical presence. So yeah, and they had, but a, but a good footballer too. I mean, not just not just his physicality. Uh, a lot of people, I think, underrate some of the quality of players at the time. Yeah, it was a good, t- it was a very good team, and they 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 were a bit unlucky that day. Right, so well, I'll be looking at the, the Wimbledon teams. So Wimbledon teams: Dave Besson in goals, uh, number two, John Scales, Terry Phelan, Vinnie Jones, Eric Young, Andy Thorne, Terry Gibson, Alan Cork, John Fashnew. Laurie Sanchez and Dennis Wise and Laurie Cunningham come on as a substitute for Terry Gibson. Yes, Laurie Cunningham of Real Madrid uh, coming on as a substitute for Wimbledon, which strikes me as even though he did the same in the final. If you look at that team, it really was uh, the team that had got into the, into the I'll call it the Premier League because that's what it is now, was basically Dave Bassett, Harry Bassett's team. And uh, he'd left the previous summer and Bobby Gould had taken it over. And he brought in, uh, which was his talent, he brought in people like John Scales, who also came on as a sub that day. He didn't start um, in the final, um, didn't start the final. Um, I'm pretty sure he got Dennis Wise, who was an unused reserve team player at Southampton. I'm pretty sure he brought him in. Uh, And a couple of other, well, cheap and cheerful buys. The, the whole team cost next to nothing. Um, Vinnie Jones had come in from Wheelstone. Um, Dave Besant had been, uh, I'll be slaughtered by Wimbledon fans for not knowing this, but I think it was somewhere like Enfield. Um, went on to play for England. Vinnie Jones went on to play for Wales. Dennis Wise went on to play for England. And although they had a reputation for being hoofball and um, the, um, what was it, the position of maximum opportunity approach to football. I'd get the ball in the area and let it drop because that's your best chance of winning. Um, really, there were some good footballers in that team. They were underrated. One of the ones who was the sort that you don't notice unless you're a real football addict uh, or even a, a particularly well uh, thoughtful football person was Laurie Sanchez, who went on to score the winning goal at Wembley. He... Um, all of these players regard AFC Wimbledon as the natural successor of what happened to Wimbledon. And Laurie came into the sportsman's dinner for us. And uh, he talked about, he won, he scored the winning goal in the cup final. And, and uh, nowadays you, you see players interviewed on television and they're saying, they got a hat trick and say, oh no, it's not about my hat trick. It's not, it's about the team. It's about the three points. And I'm thinking, I'll give it a rest, will you? And your three, your hat trick probably won you 30,000 pounds. Um, you love it, the fact that it, it, you're the star of the team. And Laurie was one of those guys who was just um, fantastically honest. He said, 
he scored the winner at Wembley and he didn't want anybody else to score. <laughs> he wanted yeah. to be the guy who'd scored the winner and he was just praying that, you know, not praying, but he still played a win, but uh, he wanted that attribute. He wanted that accolade and years later he can carry it with him. And I thought, how wonderfully honest. <laughs> I went to a, a, a sports dinner, a charity dinner, moving on sideways a bit. They had uh, people who'd scored 100 goals in the Premier League and they, they were being interviewed or challenged in part by um, Gary Neville. And um, God, I got the age where I forget names. The um, Liverpool um, centre-back, uh, anyway, who's now a commentator. Anyway. Carragher? Yeah. And um, they said to Carragher, who did you find the most challenging? And they said to Gary Neville, who, was, who did you most enjoy playing against? And he said, in a wonderful piece of honesty, I never enjoyed playing. I was so terrified I'd make a mistake. I never really enjoyed playing. A year later, they had Stephen Gerrard. Um, and they asked him what he enjoyed most. And he said, I never enjoyed the game till it was over. I think those insights for me are much more valuable than, yeah, it's all about the team, which yeah. is just crap. Yeah, uh, They've all been through the PR bit. And it's lovely to hear people talking honestly and openly. Similarly, when AFC Wimbledon got promoted in the Football League, we... Um, we got the stage where there's one penalty left each and Luton were going first. If they scored, then we needed to score our last one. If they missed, we were up. So I said to the to our striker, who was going to go on last, did you want him to miss so you didn't have the stress? Or did you want him to score? He said, oh, I wanted him to score. I wanted to score the winner. <laughs> and again, it's the same sort of message of, um, yeah, let's have some honesty in the game. Let's have people talking about what really, what really happens. Yeah. Uh, I mean, so um, I've, I've moved quite a distance away from that, from a semi-final day. But mm. uh, going back to the day itself, it, it was a deserved, if slightly fortunate win. And um, the next thing was how on earth did I get cup final tickets for my family. <laughs> I think um, Andy Dibble was, was he not just brought in? He, he wasn't a regular for the, for the team, was he? But he, I think I saw it and he had a fantastic game. Some of the saves he made was keeping looting in the game. Absolutely cracking saves. He did. Uh, and he went on, and he didn't have a fantastic career, but he went on to have a very good career. Actually, the other thing that strikes me about that game is that um, in the previous round, Wimbledon played Watford at Plough Lane and were 1-0 down. I think I wrote this in the right way. were 1-0 down when um, Ryan Gale was sent off. So we're down to 10 men. And in that game... Um, the substitute, Eric Young, who came on for Brian Gale, scored the equaliser and then Fash scored the winner. And, and one of the things I love about football is that, is that the small happenstances that change everything. Brian Gale never played again in the Cup that year. He missed out on an FA Cup winner's medal. Um, Eric Young stayed in the team. He was the one who went on to play in, in, the, in the Cup final. And all because in... I hesitate to call this a Wimbledon tradition, but in more in the style of how players sometimes were that year, Brian Gale had, um, how should I put it, left a trailing hand in the face of one of the Watford players just after just after they took the lead. Uh, and, and how people's careers had changed comprehensively by that for the better, for Eric Young, for the worse, for Brian Gale. It was Eric Young who played in this game too. And I, I love the, the chance, the serendipity of football, where these things as an England supporter, going back to, I think it was 1996, if Paul Gascoigne had worn size nine boots instead of size eight, <laughs> would have got through at the final. You missed by a whisker 
uh, a slide a slide in to score a goal. That's the great thing about football. It's a thing that causes you sometimes to lose when you shouldn't, like Liverpool against Wimbledon. And uh, and if you didn't have that, the game would be no fun, absolutely no fun at all. I I do that quite a lot with old um, articles which mention potential transfers. So one of the ones yeah. I love the most was Ali McCoist. Celtic were looking at Ali McCoist. And you just think, what what a difference. You know, can you imagine Ali Mc... But then again, if Ali McCoist had went to Celtic, it wouldn't you wouldn't have thought of it anything different really. But just looking back in hindsight and you think, Wow, what what if? What if? And as you say, just little things that can change the the career well, of I people. remember Ali McCoist because um, in a lesser known part of his career he came and played for my hometown team. Yeah. And it was a failure. Yeah. I mean, if I ever got to meet him, I'd like to ask him, what, what, what was it? Was it the rest of the team? Was it he was just too young? Uh, we, we found at Wimbledon that you don't take, by and large, you don't take players on first loan because they need to get the experience of playing in men's football. I know this wasn't the same for Ollie McCoy, because I think he'd come from, would it be St. Johnston? St. Johnston. Yes, and, uh, but he just wasn't a success at all. And then to see the stunning career he had at Rangers. Yeah. He scored... Goal every other game, wasn't it? Something like that. Yeah. What is it? It's not. I don't know. I'd love to understand that sort of thing. Yeah. Absolutely love to. Yeah. Another one like that jumps out to me is Tony Cascarino when he came to Celtic. He was an absolute flop when he was in England and maybe not so much. I think he went to France as well, didn't he? And yeah. it's just like, what what is it about in a particular team or in a particular league or a particular environment that you just can't shine? And it could be the players yeah, around it's you. Sunday when yeah. you're not old enough, from the look of you two gentlemen, to remember when Sunderland won the FA Cup in 1973. Mm. In the season we won the Cup, we signed a striker called Dave Watson, yeah. who was moved to centre half during that season and was a tower of strength in the FA Cup final that year. What was it in the manager that, that saw that he, um, that he should have been a centre back? Or what was it that, when he went on trial at Newcastle United, suggested that Alan Shearer should be put in goal? Yeah. And then released. Yeah, um, these are sort of the uh, the football equivalent of turning down the Beatles, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we go over the page. So Bef- before we do, Tom, more. can I just um, point out once again we are um, the pleasure of um, John Fashioner's wristband, the sweatband, <laughs> and we also have an extra bonus in that we've got Steve Foster's headband on the same double thread <laughs> as well. So we've got the two of those. We spoke about John Fashioner's head um, sweatband on a previous podcast and Steve Foster's, but they have them both in the same double spread. I think it's just a treat. <laughs> really collector's item. So yeah, so over the page again, it's just a wee bit more, a wee bit more detail uh, on the game, and there's a couple of couple of quotes down the side there. Some quotes from the games, including one from Vince Jones of Wimbledon. And uh, when I'm looking at John Fashnew, John Fashnew says Luton really wound us up because they tried to hustle us out of the game. That was a big mistake. <laughs> Wimbledon were a team you could hustle out of a game. Yeah. As, as they developed from then onwards, actually, um, especially when they involved Terry Burton on the coaching staff, they played more and more football and were always underrated for that. But, um, uh, I mean, Fashnew in particular was famous for his... Um, well, let's say, be polite, say his assertive approach to football. And I think famously the elbow in the face of um, Gary Mabbitt, broke his cheekbone, fractured his yeah. eye socket. Um, they didn't take any prisoners at all. 
I had um, John Scales, who's a lovely man, uh, played for Wimbledon and, and in that game, did it in and just described what it was like to be in, in the um, in the team at the time, you know, the crazy gang reputation, which Sam Hamam, the owner, used to great effect for uh, PR marketing purposes. But John said when he first joined as a young man from Bristol Rovers, he would go home at night in tears from the training ground because of the, the, the bullying and they do things, I don't think this happened to him, but they do things like strip someone naked and throw them in a skip. Yeah. Um, Neil Ardley, who went on to become my manager, told me about how he signed his professional contract forms and he was, what, 17, 16, 17. So he's a young, fresh-faced kid come up through the academy. He walked into the ground one day or at the training ground, uh, looked up at Dennis Wise and um, Finney Jones and they took exception to that and um, gave him a bit of a hammering. And a few days later came up to him and said, you never said anything to anybody, guys. Uh, you're okay. <laughs> uh, I think, blimey. And uh, this is, you just can't do that nowadays. In fact, mm -hmm. managers complain about how soft-soaked young players have to be. But it was, it was a brutal environment. Um, or could be, not all the time, but it also seemed somehow to foster this incredible team spirit. Yeah. I'd, I'd imagine in their heads, I mean, they talk about how Luton tried to noise them up. I'd imagine in their heads, as soon as they see a, an opposition team, that's to their approach, they just think, yes, this is absolutely playing into our hands. Yep. And, and, and I mean, Vinnie Jones was the one who had the reputation. Um, I always personally thought a lot of his later tackles was going to actually just lack that little edge of speed that would have made him a very, very good player indeed. Mm. He was a better player than people gave him credit for. But Fash was was quite capable of being brutal. Dennis Wise was um, was it was it him? Somebody said he could um, start a fight in an empty room. Um, so they they, they had uh, let's say an edge to it. Yeah. Um, and they and they and they'd been toughened up by the environment in which they 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 brought themselves up. And in the dressing room, there's no punches pulled about if you weren't playing well, you were told absolutely um, brutally sometimes. Yeah. Someone once said that Joe Kinnear didn't throw teacups; he threw the tea urn. Um, <laughs> I'm sure that's um, apocryphal, but yeah. it, it gives a sense of the of the atmosphere at the time. I think. So in the bottom uh, right-hand corner of that page, we've got a wee bit about the Scottish Cup semi-final where it says Celtic surged towards the double. Uh, so Celtic had beaten Hearts in the same day. So it's funny, all the semi-finals were played at the same time. Uh, and this year, both FA Cup finals were played at the same time the Saturday afternoon the Scottish Cup semi-finals played at the same time the Saturday Couldn't possibly happen now, could it? No. For the TV programming. Yeah, it's, uh, it's funny. One, that. Of the, one of the things when um, Wimbledon were, AFC Wimbledon were getting going was when they're setting the league fixtures, they ask you to pair with another team mm -hmm. so that you don't end up having a fixture at home on the same day. And for some strange reasons, a non-league team, actually wasn't a strange reason. We chose Chelsea because we knew a fair number of their fans would come and watch us when they weren't playing. So we, we, we paired up with them when they set the fixtures. But then it dawned on us that, how often did Chelsea play at three o'clock on a Saturday? Yeah. Um, three or four times a season. So we paired with Brentford instead so we could share their stewards. Yeah. Um, and I think that's such one of the massive changes from this era when you turn up at three o'clock and an evening kickoff was 7.30. Yeah. 
it would never be eight o'clock now. People wouldn't be able to get home in time in those days, or not easily. Um, and I think it's for, personally, I think it's for the poorer. Um, I'd rather, much rather be there um, watching the game than watching it on telly. Yeah, I agree with that. Just on the on the the article about the the Celtic Hearts game, was it? Um, again, it's Alex McDonald, the Hearts manager, is really scathing about Henry Smith, the goalkeeper. Yeah. And you know, occasionally nowadays you will get a manager who fires into his players, but you know it's it's few and far between. Normally, sort of circle the wagons, but here he's just laying into them, saying you know he's he's got to take responsibility for that and go away, blah blah blah. And I just again, you know, we spoke we spoke about touched on earlier on, and Tom and I see it all the time in the earlier magazines how how honest and forthright. Uh, the the players and managers are when they're asked questions in these magazines. No, they're not being coached. I mean, I think the probably the only one who consistently does it nowadays is Mourinho. And uh, you probably saw the other day that um, England fullback Shaw was just saying, in a slightly roundabout way, what a nightmare it was for him at Manchester United. Because even when he played well, it was uh, what was it? Shaw's body and my brain said uh, Mourinho of his of his much of the one of the match performance. It's about the only one who does it anymore. I think I think probably Alex Ferguson was known for well publicly though he's pretty supportive, but privately, um, yes, the hair dryer treatment. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's so unusual, and I, I, partly because a lot of the power has changed from um, where it used to be uh, with the managers towards the players now. It, it's just before England won the World Cup, and I know I'm speaking to two Scots, but just before they did, it was only two years before that that they abolished the old retain uh, transfer system where you couldn't go to another club. You just weren't. You were, you were, it was known as the slavery clause. You weren't allowed to. And then you had the abolition of um, the maximum wage around about the same time. And then gradually as the years have gone on, uh, you just have to, A, keep the players happy with um, constant arm around the shoulder rather than a bit of a kicking. And secondly, their agents who can move them on any almost any time they want. It's a completely different game, and, and for the poorer, I'm sad to say. Don't mean to be too downbeat, but so we go over the over the page there. Yep. So the left hand side there, we've got Sunshine Ray. This is the Davy Cooper column, and he's talking about his Rangers teammate Ray Wilkins. And I, I know that there are plenty of fans who reckon that at 31 Ray's best days are behind him. And that an international recall at this late stage of his career would be a backward step for England. So he's only thirty-one there in that picture, although he seems he seems a lot older. Uh, and just still had some hair. Um, <laughs> uh, my, my, if you asked me to conjure up an image of Ray Wilkins, there wouldn't be any hair in it. <laughs> he obviously played on for quite a while longer. The other thing I particularly remember about him is wasn't he the first player ever to be sent off playing for? Yeah. Yeah, against uh, was it Morocco in the World Cup '86. Mm. He threw yeah. the ball, threw the ball at the referee. Yeah, was it pretty early on as well in the game? It was. It was. Um, yes, it was. It's not a not an accolade you want, like being mm. the first guy to um, be sent off in a FA Cup final, yeah. um, which but, wasn't him, but, but um, same sort of thing. Uh, not- notoriety. It's easier to achieve notoriety than it is to achieve fame, isn't it? Just, yeah. He certainly achieved through that. But he was a fine, fine player. Yeah, so then, I mean, I just think of Neil Webb there as too, who was another one who who had a career that was um, 
staccato, really. He had massive successes at some clubs and just failed with others. If I remember right, he was a great success at Forest. Mm. Didn't really make it at Man United. Is this is uh, is this him going on to Rangers? So this is uh, so Neil Neil Webb's there because um, David Cooper sort of talking Ray Wilkins up coming out of the England squad. I think Webb benefit from. I didn't remember him going on to Rangers. Wilkins' experience there because he's talking about how Wilkins is master the continental game playing with AC Milan and Paris Saint Germain. But I so, so seeing internationally, he's done it thirty one, and I just said a wee look in the current England squad. Uh, Kyle Walker and Jordan Henderson are 31. They're, I guess, the kind of senior players in England. The current England squad. I, 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 you know, it, it's um, it's very rare that you have a team like the 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 kids at Manchester United that win the league from from the from the. Well, you don't win anything with kids, as Alan Hansen once said, but you need a, a sprinkling of um, a bit more experienced players. The season we won promotion to the Football League, we started with the youngest team we'd ever had. But by the end of it, we'd brought in a couple of older hands because you just need that. You need the ones where they, well, as they say of Wilkins in, the, in this, being there, done it, uh, calm head and under pressure, uh, which is exactly what you want. And Henderson in particular, I think, brings that to England. I'm a little bit surprised he doesn't start. Mm. I guess he's just still shaking off the effect of a long-term injury, isn't he? Yeah, I, th- I think it's, it's what they bring... Obviously, what they bring on the park, but off the park is just as important, you know, to to bring the experience of how you prepare for a game and how you react to certain situations off the park. So I think, you know, that as well. I mean, Ray Wilkins was a, you know, came in brilliant for Rangers. I mean, he absolutely bossed that midfield at times. But I, I don't think because it was uh, did he go to Hibs straight after Rangers or was it QPR? I think he went to QPR after Rangers. Yeah. And then he came back up to play for because he made his debut for Hibs at forty, hmm. I believe. Really? Yeah. I've missed that. Yeah. I, I don't think it was a particularly successful spell for him, was it? I don't think it's. it's... No, you can go. Uh, there's a, there's a player we had who's still playing at forty-one. He's he's playing in League Two now, but it it is the, the genetic freak. Sorry, I shouldn't keep doing that. And actually, still deliver. Yeah. But you talk about the benefits of experience. I mean, we we brought in a player in our season where we. Um, Win promotion into League One from League Two in a playoff final at Wembley. We brought in a guy called Darius Charles from um, been at Burton, um, who looked like he'd reached the end of his career because of injury. But we brought him in, and suddenly you have this guy in defence who is just he just has a physical presence on and off the pitch. And indeed, in the playoff semi final, which went to extra time, he just and it seems to be the vogue now, but it wasn't then. He took over the. Um, the team talk before the start of extra time. Being that, done that, knew what he was talking about. Getting the players completely respected him, a real leader on the pitch, and indeed offered at the training ground with his habits, never late, always trained hardest, always lastly at the training ground. That sort of thing, you can't, well, you have to try and inculcate into younger players, but when you can bring it in with an experienced player, it just makes such a difference to a team. And he, in many ways, is one of the main reasons we got promoted that season. And, and, you know, you look at Wimbledon, you had the old heads there. Of, of, um, Alan Cork, who'd been around for years and yeah. been, been every, done everything. The real experience that comes with that, it's invaluable. But we never aspired to the qualities of a Ray Wilkins in our midfield, I'm afraid. <laughs> so page nine there, the match will get golden goals. So it's some pictures there of uh, in black and white. Uh, it says matches the magazine with picture power. So there's a page of black and white photos of goals being scored uh, and they include John Aldridge scoring for Liverpool against Wimbledon in the league. 
Viv Anderson scoring for Manchester United against West Ham. And Siggy Johnson scores for Sheffield Wednesday against Norwich City. I think that season we, we, uh, we played um, Liverpool twice that season, obviously, because we're in the Premier League. I think we were we were the subject of a, an unfortunate 2-1 defeat at that place, and we got a one-all draw at home. Um, but one of the reasons that I think we were comfortable playing in the FA Cup final was we didn't feel in any way intimidated. And one of the things about that season that that, that picture reminds me of us playing Liverpool was... Um, People talk about the Wimbledon win that season as being an absolute, complete shock. But I wouldn't say the team that comes sixth in the Premier League, beating the team that came top, mm. is on the face of it a real shock. If you look at the players individually, yes, man for man, <clears throat> I don't think you'd have swapped anybody. But um, sixth beast first, that's not exactly a headline, is it? Yeah. yeah. I, I, th- I thought Wimbledon, had, had they not already beaten Liverpool? I, I thought they were undefeated that season. I thought them. that was in our first season in the league. Right, it might have been, but but you're you're absolutely spot on about the fact that taken in isolation of one or two seasons, it wasn't really that much of a shock. No, shouldn't shouldn't have been. It's yeah. still characterised as one of the great shocks, mm-hmm. probably because Liverpool was such a such a fantastic team and had such a great run both in in England and in Europe. Yeah, but yeah, absolutely sixth place first. Big deal. Hmm. Uh, all right, we go over the page again then. So so this is a two-page piece headlined White Heart Strain. And well, this is looking at some of the uh, London clubs. London's Falling Down, part two of our spotlight on the capital crash of three of London's giants as we talk to a trio at the sharp end of a season to forget. So Mitchell Thomas at Tottenham. Obviously, our fans are disappointed in our own lack of success in the fact that Arsenal have done so well. Paul Ince at West Ham. But Alan Dickens is one of the players who has suffered most because while he's a recognised midfielder, he's been forced to play up front. And when he hasn't done well, the crowd have jeered him and called for Frank McAvery to come back. And they also speak to Tony Derigo at Chelsea. The, the picture that catches my um, attention on that page is David Pleat, who... When he was manager of Luton, I think they relegated Manchester City on the last day of the season with mm-hmm. a goal in the 110th minute. No, I mean the 80, 87th minute or something. They won. They went to Man City, and I think the team that lost went down. Was how it was. Does that ring any bells? Yeah, Radiant And Pleat was famous for um, just didn't know what to do with all the energy in his body. And this famous <laughs> film of him in his in his fawn suit and his bay and his uh, brown shoes. Kangaroo hopping across the pitch uh, in sheer delight at um, that one nil win. And this, you know, football people have long memories because when we went to play the playoff final, which had to be at was then called the um, City of Manchester Stadium, I think. The, is it the Emirates now? Anyway, whatever it's called now. Um, we went there. We were allocated, this was to get into the Football League, we were allocated the away dressing room. And when we got there, the, the guy said, are you playing Luton? Those bastards relegated us. And I still remember Pleat danced across the pitch. There is no way they're having the home dressing room. And they switched us round. And that was, um, I don't know, uh, 28 years later. Hey, you you got to love the pettiness of football. You really do. <laughs> and, the, and the memory, you know, the, yeah. the, the, that guy, I don't know, well, that guy insulted us 28 years ago. He didn't mean to. He just didn't know how to celebrate. Yeah. I think it was more of an insult to the, to the uh, style guide and fashion guide. Than <laughs> to... 
Yeah, the pettiness and the and the long range memories, absolutely wonderful. Uh, I've just looked up there, um, Liverpool and uh, Wimbledon's record in, in the league run at that time. So you you were right, uh, Eric, in, in the results uh, in that eighty seven eighty eight season in the league. But um, uh, Wimbledon were in the first division uh, at eighty six eighty seven. Uh, so that that was that cup winning season was our second season in the top flight. Yes. Uh, and Wimbledon had beaten Liverpool at Anfield in the league in March '87. Um, when you think about that, I mean, eleven years earlier they were winning the Southern League, so the Premier League. Yeah, uh, astonishing story, absolutely astonishing story. Yeah, it was Nigel yes, Winterburn. And, I'm sure uh, we won in our first season. I don't think we won at home. Right, I beat them at Anfield uh, March. Yes. Nigel Winterburn and Alan Court scored the goals. Kenny Dalglish scored for Liverpool. Yeah. What an achievement, I think, uh, which again is why I was so much happier <clears throat> that my boys chose Wimbledon rather than Chelsea or, Chelsea or Spurs. I could live with that. Yeah. Right, okay, so we, we got anything else to say there, Andy, but any... No, there's just um, some of the stats on the players. Paul Ince, 53 England caps, two goals, and just an interesting thing which you sometimes forget about, that Fergie labelled him a bottler and a big-time Charlie, which was, um, you know, we're talking about how managers sort of protect their players. And once again, Fergie Fergie didn't hold back with his, his um, assessment of Paul Ince back then. Tony DiRigo, I sort of forgot that he was a, he's actually Australian. And mm. he, he played 15 times for England. And yeah. and it was simply because that he applied for a, a British for British citizenship, it wasn't anything to do with family. So he's, I think he's, his dad was Italian or something like that, and his mum yeah. was Australian. Um, so so he basically applied for citizenship so he could play for England. So Paul Ince was the self-styled governor, wasn't he? Mm. Oh, that's, he yeah. himself. I mean, he um he went on to manage um that team in Milton Keynes that we generally uh-huh. talk about AFC and one of the things that, that amused us no end when we were, I think we were probably in the conference about to get into Football League or in League Two, he said, um, well, what can you do with three million quid? Which was about four times our annual wage budget at the time. Yeah. And he was struggling to make a success in League One. And I thought, well, what a different sort of world it is that, uh, that, uh, that other clubs live in. Um, so anyway, that's, yeah. uh, that's an aside on, on Mr. Ince. He was a good player, though a very, a very fine player. Yeah, I was surprised to hear that he only scored two goals. Only two goals in fifty-nine. Yeah, the, this is the stats I, I found: two goals in fifty-three, three games. Uh, right, we go over the page then. For, yeah. uh, the Trevor Francis interview. So it's an exclusive interview by Adrian Curtis. So just picking out a couple of wee things that he says. So Trevor Francis at this point is a, a thirty-three-year-old Queens Park Rangers player. And here he warns young English players like Nigel Clough to talk to older players before moving abroad. And in the article, he criticises Ian Rush for not learning Italian. Uh, in the interview, Francis says he got things easier in Italy than Rush did as Sampdoria had just come up from Serie B, so weren't expected to do big things as they paid only £1 million for him, while Juventus have forked out £3 million for Rush and they expected the title. And he, he suggests that an, uh, an English striker of 1988 moving abroad would suffer through lack of experience of man-to-man marking due to the English clubs not having any European experience over the last few years. There, there, were, there, were, there were 
um, beliefs about continental players when 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 I'm quite a bit older than you gents. And uh, one of the one of the things was that um, they didn't like they didn't like it rough. Mm-hmm. The other one was they couldn't head a ball, and their goalkeepers were prone to um, well, in the days when you could actually touch a goalkeeper and not be, be sent to prison for it. Yeah. Um, their goalkeepers were very vulnerable to uh, to a good old fashioned um, British challenge. So, uh, and players going abroad was v- very unusual. The first one I can remember was John Charles, which yeah. was, and he was miles ahead of the, all the rest of them. And I think Jerry Byrne possibly went to, um, and then Ian Rush, who anecdotally claimed that, what was it when he went, was it Juventus he went to? He said, anecdotally, it's claimed that he said it was like being in a foreign country. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and it was, um, these were, these were real trail, trailblazers, the Trevor Francis's and the Carolinica went to Barcelona, didn't they? Although that was some years later. Yeah. I can understand they struggled. And nowadays you have people there to organize your accommodation, your shopping, you know, making sure your kids are in school, uh, getting you, uh, language lessons. Those days, I think you were very much left to yourself. Yeah, you know what? I think, I think that's. I think that's right. In in those days, for us now, you can probably employ a whole staff to sort of look after you if you if you're a big player going going abroad. But yeah, but Francis makes the point that yeah, Ian Rush knew he was going to uh, Juventus for over a year, but didn't learn the language, which he said was obviously the thing that that kind of um, stopped him doing uh, doing so. Well. I remember about Trevor Francis as he scored the winner in the European Cup final, but um, Brian Clough who was. Um, Another one of those ones I wasn't afraid to say what he thinks and basically he didn't do much. He just stooped and headed the ball in. <laughs> and the bloke who deserved all the credit for it was a player who I, th- I always think Brian Clough rescued from oblivion, John Robertson. John Robertson, yeah. Who must have been one of the best left-wingers um, I've ever seen. Wonderful, wonderful player with a fantastic touch. And Clough had a particular talent, I think, for bringing players out of, out of themselves. Allegedly, when he took a player on, You'd, you'd say, then what's your problem? Um, women drink or gambling. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I don't know which, if any of those applied to John Robertson, but I do know he turned him around completely. I got so much pleasure from watching that guy play. Yeah. Francis, the goal lead on a plate that allowed him to be the man who won a European Cup. And I, I was a big fan of Clough because um, he played for my hometown team, Sunderland. I was there the day his career was ended mm-hmm. and he... Um, he did in his ACL, right, anterior cruciate ligament, which is not a nothing injury these days, but wouldn't have ended his career. And I much admired his son, who wasn't the goal scorer, but was a quality player. Yeah. And everybody's got a Brian Clough story, and I'm going to crowbar <laughs> one in here. <laughs> um, our manager, uh, one of our managers at AFC Wimbledon, Terry Brown, he, um, his assistant manager, a guy called Stuart Cash, his son now plays for Aston Villa. Uh, Matty Cash and Stewart had the relatively rare, probably less rare nowadays, um, characteristic of having been signed by two European Cup winners, um, Brian Clough at Forest and uh, Martin O'Neill when he was at Wickham. Anyway, they were they were managers of Aldershot and they went to watch a game against Burton Athletic, who they were due to the Burton Albion, who they were due to play. And um, the manager there was Nigel Clough, and sitting in the stands now a very old man with a blanket around his knees was Brian Clough. Now, Stuart Cash is a very forthright man, nothing faces him. And he, so he said to Terry, uh, it's Cluffy over there. And Terry said, we'll go and say hello. You know, he signed you, he remember you. No, no, I can't, I really can't. 
Why not? Well, you might not remember me. Well, go and say hello. No. Why don't you go up to him and say, hello, Mr. Clough. You, I don't know if you remember me. I'm Stuart Cash. You know, all right, I'll do that. So he walked up the stairs, walked up to Brian Clough and said, hello, Mr. Clough. I'm Stuart Cash. And before he could finish, Brian Clough said, the worst fullback I ever signed. <laughs> <laughs> and he came back to Terry and Terry swears this is true and said, jubilantly, have you remembered me? <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Was it was it was it Jock Wallace that Gary Lineker played for? Yeah, the Leicester City, yeah. Leicester, because he told a story once about being, I'm pretty sure it's right, being um, held against the wall by Jock Wallace for 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 his failures in a game, and he claimed he'd scored a hat trick. <laughs> I don't know. If, I don't know much about Mr. Wallace's management style, but it was certainly not untypical of managers in those days, was mm. it? Uh, well, I mean, I think that was just a Scottish manager style. You know, there's that. Was it? Do you oh, think yeah. it's a particular characteristic of Scottish Yeah, well, was that that story with uh, Jim McLean after he's done the United team had won 7 1 uh, against St. Hamilton He chewed them out and forced them to go jog around the park because uh, they, they, they didn't entertain, I think, was his was his, his criticism uh, of them. So, yeah, yeah, guys like that, Jock Wallace and Jim McLean, were forever not happy. And again, is that, have you ever seen that bit of footage from Aberdeen when the Scottish Cup when Alex Ferguson's shouting, uh, <laughs> absolutely raging? Uh, at his team because he said it was only sort of um, Miller and Jim Leighton that played Miller and McLeish that had played well that day. So I'm really? never, never satisfied Scottish managers. No, and, and made hard decisions because wasn't it? It was Ferguson. Was it? Was it McLean? He dropped from a cup final. Uh, not McLean. Um, who's the goalkeeper he dropped between the Jim Leighton? Yeah, Jim Leighton between the final and the and the, the replay. Yeah. So I think Leighton didn't even get a, a medal. Must be one of the harshest things ever to happen to you. Yeah, well, Jim Leighton's never spoke to Alex Ferguson again after that day. And I, I, I'm with him. I sympathise <laughs> with him. What a terrible thing to happen to you. But on the other hand, your job's to make the, put the best team out you can. So yeah, hard man, hard man. Right, we go over the page then. So where we got Tranmere's proudest day. Uh, so this is uh, page fourteen, fifteen. So this is about the Mercantile Credit League centenary a weekend of all-day fixtures at Wembley, 20 minutes each way on the Saturday, increasing to 30 minutes on the Sunday. And uh, this involved a number of teams to celebrate the league centenary, Tranmere, Wimbledon, Liverpool, Newcastle, Leeds, Forest, Blackburn, Villa, Everton, Wolves, Luton, Man United, Wigan, Sunderland, Crystal Palace and Sheffield Wednesday. So the attendances, there was 41,500 there on the Saturday and only 17,000 there on the Sunday. Do you remember this at all, uh, Eric? No, I, I, I looked at this and said, I don't remember this at all. I didn't remember this at all. I didn't remember Wimbledon being there and I didn't remember Sunderland being there, the two teams <laughs> I'm associated with. And I do recognise, instantly recognise Marco Gabbiadini. I'm pretty sure that's him, this photo in the, um, yeah. the middle of the page. But no, it was bizarre, <clears throat> bizarre competition to hold, isn't it? A bit like... Seemed to me a complete non non event like the Intertoto Cup. Yeah. Why did they play these games? I I, it was an odd. Uh, it was an odd thing. Andy, do you know much about it? No. So it, it was an odd because obviously it was twenty minute games, but it was on the full side Wem- Wembley pitch. And if, if you look at it, they were all pretty much low scoring games, as you would as you would expect for twenty yeah. minutes each way on a full size pitch. Yeah, Tranmere Rovers made the semi final. And they lost to Nottingham Forest in penalties, but uh, Arsenal won the tournament. I think it was a sort of largely forgettable event designed to celebrate the league, cent- the league centenary. Um, well, I wonder what state the pitch at the end of the day. Um, 
very different in those days, of course. But um, when you watch the pictures of these old games, even even as relatively recent as that, the pitches are complete, often a complete squagmire. I don't think Wembley ever descended to that level, although it was famous for lumps of turf coming up, wasn't it? When we Wembley in the in the playoffs in 2016, as AFC Wimbledon, I um, I was used to try and grab hold of the groundsman and just get him to explain to me how the pitch worked. And so there's a picture of me somewhere on my hands and knees with the groundsman <laughs> picking through, as if we'd lost a contact lens, picking through the glass. And he's trying to identify the plastic for me that, so that holds it all together and makes it much more viable a pitch. Mm. Um, there's, I mean, there's two reasons for doing that. One is natural curiosity. The second one is a bit like the groundsman at Luton who made sure we got the home dressing room. It's always a good idea to get on the right side of the stuff there. But, yeah. um, I mean, that's, that's, I wouldn't say it's my main memory of Wembley, but it, but it did take me back to watching the, the games, the early Wimbledon games, when you know, the ball would get stuck in the mud and nobody thought anything, nobody thought twice about it, did they? And without wishing to be um, jumping to too many conclusions over this, I always assumed that the further north you went, so Sunderland had worse weather than the south of England, in Scotland you had, a, you had that problem in Trumps, I always assumed. Yeah. The, the, I'm just going to say, so the thing I picked out most from this these two pages was the photo of Marco Gabbiadini. Now, he was born in 1968, and this magazine is from 1980. He's 20 there. Yeah. And he doesn't look 20. He looks a <laughs> little bit older than 20, shall we say. And maybe it's just a bad uh, pose that he's caught him in. But, I mean, no, that's, that's precisely how I remember him throughout the entire <laughs> time. He was at... Um... Sunderland, I think Chelsea bought him um, where he wasn't a success at all. I mean, he had good skills, but um, incredible pace. Mm. And you, know, you you pay a lot of money for that even now. The, the players of the ultimate pace are the ones you're after. But yeah, uh, but otherwise, I, I'm pretty honest, I can't think I would have been interested in going even if, I, even if I'd had the opportunity. Mm. It, it's a nothing event. Yeah. Um, Jumped up by marketing man, I guess. Was it eleven aside, Tom? Yeah, it was eleven aside. Yeah, because because it, it was just it, it seems to me it's almost like the outdoor six soccer sixes. Yeah. You know, but they, if they'd made that six aside, then that maybe would have been a bit more. But then again, why not then just have it indoors? Yeah, it's just, it's, it's a strange. strange. It's almost you can imagine it's a pre-season thing. Yeah. yeah. You know, just in some it sort of... Really, it's end of season. Yeah. And there's still fixtures going on, isn't there? Yeah. Uh, or conference division. There's still at least one Division 1 game to go. Yeah. Best forgotten, I think, those sorts of events. Mm. We go over the page then, Andy. This is the yep. FBA Worldwide section. So have a look at a couple of... World of Soccer, compiled by Paul Stratton. Have a look at a couple of the bits here. One of the headlines is Zico to retire. Brazilian World Cup star Zico has announced he will retire in July when his contract at Flamengo comes to an end. And a 35-year-old veteran of three World Cups plans to start a new career teaching football in Japan. Says Zico, I'm getting tired of my injuries and I think the time has come to hang up my boots. I have an offer to start a soccer camp in Tokyo and I am likely to accept it. So, spoiler, Zico didn't actually retire at that point, although he did move to Tokyo and played for Kashima Antlers until 1994. That's a good few years after this, isn't it? Yeah. Wonderful, wonderful player. Yeah, he was. There was a lot of investment in Japan at the time, wasn't there? Mm. Trying to develop the country. It still not really become a footballing nation in terms of World Cup, have they? Yeah. No, 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 I say, no. And I never quite understood how Arsene Wenger ended up there. Mm. Um, which just seemed to be quite a 
perverse thing to have done and then for Arsenal to have spotted that he was there and the qualities that he had yeah um one of the best things to come out of Japan I think he changed football in in England dramatically well in Europe I think dramatically with his approach so in the facing page there as well the Cumin Sparks Cup controversy uh this is Ronald Cumin Dutch star Ronald Cumin has severed PSV Eindhoven's expected march to European club Cup glory with an amazing outburst directed at his club's semi-final opponents. Holland's champions-elect have won a host of admirers this season with a brand of exciting football that has seen them score more than 100 goals in the league. As they go into next week's semi-final second-leg tie against Spanish Giants Real Madrid as favourites to lift the European Cup following a 1-1 draw in Spain the first leg. But star defender Koeman did PSV's image no favours at all when speaking in the Dutch magazine Sport International, he declared, against Madrid, we will be using the knowledge that they have seven players with one caution each, while we have only three. We will try to provoke them. <laughs> um, but yeah, so at PSV, uh, they drew that game 0-0 and uh, got into the final on away goals. But I, I just I had a wee look at PSV's, uh, PSV's run winning the European Cup that season. So they'd drawn 1-1 and 0-0 with Bordeaux in the quarter-final. Uh, and obviously they drew the two games with Real Madrid in the semi-final. And then they drew 0-0 with Benfica in the final, winning 6-5 in penalties. So although they won the European Cup, the, the, the last win was the 4th of November and they only won three matches the entire tournament just by being able to win an away goals and penalty kicks. That's incredible, that, isn't it? A fine player, wasn't it, Coleman? Ah, I was, yeah. Uh, wasn't it him that um, Graham Teller held as responsible for losing the England job? Could yeah. He could have been sent off for bringing down Poole. Was it David Platt he pulled down? Yeah, yeah. And then he scored a free kick a few minutes, two minutes and, later. And, and then, yes, and then the worst of all the world, you then go on to add insult to injury by scoring a goal against us. It's going the key goal against us. Yeah. yeah. Although... And Graham Till was never a great success as a manager. I mean, for me, the one thing he brought to English football was the kickoff routine where you lump the ball down the left wing for your big, tall striker to try and head it. Yeah. Um, for me, that's a legacy of Graham Taylor, rather sadly. Yeah. They mentioned the, the number of goals that they scored that season. So in total that season, they scored 105 goals in just 29 games. That's wow. like 3.6 goals per game they scored that season. Yeah. That's outstanding. I mean, and, um, and also there's a mention there of Hans Hillhouse who went on to play for Aberdeen. Um, who, yeah. as it says, Tigana was their best player, and what Hillhouse did was quite effective. He eliminated Tigana for the rest of the match, and he was unable to start the return. So he's he's basically yeah. I mean, it's just the whole article there is about how they've been quite physical and and provoking reactions and things like that. So yeah, again, there's. But you'd probably be up for a charge, you know, nowadays, if you yeah. came out with comments like that. Well, yes, it's not quite, me, not quite in the in the scale of Roy Keane's famous comment about no. uh, taking revenge, but it, yeah, you couldn't possibly say that. And he couldn't do it either, mm. the, the challenges he would get away with. I haven't done the stats, but it does seem to me that, I mean, as the years have gone on, goals have become harder and harder to score because, you know, the English goal-scoring record is um, 60 goals in a season, I think. Right. Um, and the and the second best was um, fifty nine. So Brian Clough scored forty two in a season, I think, for Sunderland. I think he did. Because nowadays, if you get a fifteen goal striker, you've hit gold, haven't you? Mm-hmm. Twenty goals is is the top tier, the absolute top tier. Yeah. Arsene Wenger was saying recently that he was 
what are the words he used, but the, one of the things he noticed about Premier League football, to put it politely, was it's all about defence now. And so many of the games you see, it's all about moving the ball sideways and sideways and sideways. And I must admit, I've lost a bit of my appetite for watching the game um, because the old um, up and atom style of the Wimbledons and indeed, and the, and the aggressive tactics, assertive tactics of, of the Hollands of those days seem to have gone. One of the refreshing things about this Euro 20 Championship work was a complete reversal of the way Italy play. Mm. From the traditional days of Dow defence, win 1-0, um, whereas now they're playing attacking, exciting football. Um, what a transformation, what a delight to watch. Yeah. We've got to be careful saying that since we're playing in the final, but um, <laughs> it's a real pleasure to see that sort of football back at international level. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's one one of the things I I was just looking for some of them there, but one of the things I I have brought up a few times is, but like I said, certainly sixties, seventies, when when you have the end of season, and it's top scorers, there's there's a dozen or more that are over 30, 40 goals, yeah, scorers, you know, quite easily, and then the you know the eighties, it was like struggling to get out of twenties. And and oh. even now is you know you, 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 anybody that gets above thirty goals that's outstanding. So it, it's I'm in danger of wandering into old foggy territory. But I remember watching Kenneth Wilsonham, you know, the famous. They think it's all over. They're on the pitch commentator. If people don't remember him, commenting on an England game many many years ago, probably in the sixties, and commenting with a sort of laugh in his voice how strange it was that the continental players seemed happy to pass the ball backwards rather than run the risk of losing losing it. You think what a different game it is since then. In those days, when he got a free kick. It was always the big set piece event. The centre backs would come forward, and you'd be looking for the opportunity for school. Now you just put it down and pass it, and off you go again. Um, Defences have become much more assured, and tactics are much tighter, stopping people scoring. It's um, it's a less ex- it's a it's a less there there are fewer goals scored, and with it, I think it's therefore a less exciting game for me anyway. But then, as I said, that's probably me moving to old foggy mode. Yeah. You know, I asked the question: Why do we, you know, why do we think there has been a change? But I, I don't know that it was ever really answered. I don't know. I don't think there was any real change. Organisationally really. and, and tactically, I think people mm. just got much more sophisticated. Yeah. It's harder to. It's also harder to bully people now. If you go back to the early days of when goalkeepers could be barged, the sort of tackles that were allowed. Um, I mean, I'm not saying that's a bad thing that that isn't allowed now. Yeah, but um, so much have changed, and now it's so much. I remember talking to Wally Downs, who managed us for a while, and he he been he has been a successful coach at several Premier League games, and he said, to my surprise, I'm not a big fan of a tackle. Well, I mean, I remember watching players who would, you know, the the winger would get past them, would hair after them, a flying tackle, legs flying everywhere, winger turned head over heels, the ball flies into the stand. That was part of the drama of the game. Fans still love a really good crunching tackle. Yeah. And yet one of the top coaches um, in the Premier League saying, I'm not a big fan of tackling. Yeah. And that struck me particularly when I watched an England game some years ago where Stuart Pearce had a fantastic game. And then I looked at the stats, two tackles in 90 minutes. Stuart Pearce, I mean, yeah. wasn't exactly a, um, he wasn't a, a light touch player, was he? And yet, it, so it, it's it's the way they manage people, the way they manoeuvre them now. That just has made for defences so much more effective. Mm-hmm. And it, for me, it's taken some of the fun out of the game. 
So the only thing uh, else I was going to say before we move on, there's a picture of Glenn Hoddle there uh, in his Monaco days. Just a, a smart Monaco shirt he's, he's wearing there, and that's a um, mm. diagonal red-white style that they, they always do. Yep. The, the other thing I want to, just on the... So it's got a bunch of the European leagues, and in Spain, Real Madrid are at the top, so as you'd expect, but Barcelona are in ninth place, 22 points behind, and this is when it was two points for a win. So, I mean, that is pretty pretty much a bad season for Barcelona, eh? Certainly is. Certainly is. So we go over to Mixed Mailbag. So Mixed Mailbag on the left-hand side here. There's a couple of wee things I was going to look at. A letter from Sean Davis of Pink Hull, Staffordshire. Once again, Luton's artificial pitch has given them an unfair advantage at home in cup competitions. In the Simon Cup, Stoke and Swindon came a cropper, and in the Littlewoods Cup, Bradford and Oxford both looked hopelessly lost. Luton reached the FA Cup semi-finals after overcoming Portsmouth and Southampton at home, but where would they be had all their games been on grass? <laughs> well, yes, of course, and there was there was Luton and QPR, I think, were the two teams who particularly had um, artificial pitches. Um, even now, I mean, the old pitches now are to some extent, well, Top-level pitches are to some extent artificial because I think there's about five to ten percent of plastic in them. Um, but even now, I mean, again, the FC Wimbledon, we we played, we drew Sutton United, who were just been promoted into football league, but they were during the conference. We had to go and play on that on that pitch, and the players absolutely hated it. It was just desperate to get the game over. The players and the um, managers were against it, and. Uh, one of the things that, that happened behind the scenes was that, as I understand it, the football conference allowed the use of artificial pitches. Uh, and they were told that, the, the, that they were encouraged, possibly encouraged by the FA to do that because the football leagues one and two were going to vote in favour of allowing it if people wanted to. And then come the voted football leagues one and two, um, the teams, the, the clubs voted tied in their vote as to whether or not to allow them. So basically the, the, the proposal hadn't passed and they weren't allowed, which left the conference stranded. So now you have teams like Sutton United playing on an artificial pitch, which is a massive money spender for them, as well as giving them, I still believe, a degree of advantage. Getting promoted in the Football League, they have to tear that pitch up because they have to play on grass. Um, I'm sure the day will come sometime when artificial pitches are okay, but but not then, and, and we used to train when our training pitches weren't good enough. We'd train on artificial pitches, and some of the players just somewhere between couldn't and wouldn't because the older players where their knees were starting to go. So the FA, as I understand it, came back and leaned heavily on the Football League to um, adopt at League One and League Two level to adopt artificial pitches, and I thought it was a very elegant way out of it uh, that the Football League found. They said they'd be perfectly willing to, once the PFA and the League Managers Association were also in favour, known full well that the massive uh, antipathy to non-league, to, to um, artificial pitches resides there. So that's where it's been left. You still have this anomaly that in the conference and up to that level you can play on artificial pitches, but beyond, absolutely not. I can't see that personally being resolved for 10, 15 years, maybe quite some time before that's going to happen. Still a big advantage to have a home game on one of them. And the other letter I was going to look at is from Carol Wright of Norwich. Looking back to Scotland's dire performances against the likes of Luxembourg and Saudi Arabia, 
Surely national team boss Andy Roxburgh must get his finger out if he hopes to mount a successful World Cup qualifying campaign. Other national teams like the Russians and Romanians base their teams around the champion club side and Scotland should do likewise by selecting Liverpool trio Alan Hansen, Steve Nipple and Gary Gillespie to form three quarters of the defence. Team confidence spreads from an established back four. The Liverpool trio will give Scotland that and allow the rest of the team to play with purpose. Well, yeah. where would we be without opinionated fans? Yeah, uh, when he when he disagree with uh, when he disagree with them, but I think all, all three did get their uh, their turn running about that running about that time playing for Scotland. Uh, Andy, have you you picked out anything else from any of these pages? There is um, there's a letter about this um, yeah tea spreading. It's Colin Kennedy Gleish, a moaning, whinging, bad loser, and all round crybaby, which I think was just. Um, it's just poetic, isn't it? It's just a beautiful phrase, but I, I you know, I, I, I get it. I get it. Any time, if you'd go into the radio, f- the the, f- the dialings immediately after a game on a Saturday, it's, um, hmm. I don't know. I, I everyone's entitled to an opinion, but it seems to me that so many people are absolutely, completely, one hundred percent certain of their opinions. And you know, having been a CEO in football, the one thing you know is that. Well, that the players weren't trying is one of the constant cries you hear. And I've never met a footballer who didn't try. Yeah. The people I had a regular correspondence from a man who wrote to me telling me that Terry Brown, our manager, who got us three promotions in four years, was useless, hopeless, uh, bound to fail. We should get rid of him. We should sack him. And the, the absolute certainty of people in their football opinions and continues to amuse me. I yeah. really don't. I don't know where it comes from. I yeah. really don't. It's like, what, what I love is how fans make an opinion based on 90 minutes of football. Absolutely. And, you know, it's like the manager and the coaching staff train with these people all week. They see them behind closed doors. So whether somebody's not getting a game or somebody's getting a game and they're like, he shouldn't play or she should be playing. It's like there, there's a reason that they've been selected or not selected. And that reason, you know, we're not privy to it. So, you know, well, I, yeah, I just... I've still quite a lot of that close up and... Um, you know the, how they how they trained, how well they trained, whether they're absolutely completely fit, mm. uh, whether they fit into the style of play. Uh, as a as a CEO of, of AFC Wimbledon, I, I was I never tried to intervene in the way we played football. But my challenge was always, well, for example, if you want to sign a player, why are you talking about signing a player in that position when that doesn't fit with the four three three? You told me you're going to play all season. That yeah. seems to me the right sort of challenge, not. Yeah. Why are you not picking him? Because I think he's a good player. And fans are always particularly attracted, as you can see with England right now, with the the player who runs at people and has a few tricks and excites them, who's not necessarily the best player in the team. And, and I quite like him personally, but Jack Grealish seems to me a classic example of the fans are light on him as he's an exciting player. Does he give the team what they want? I'm not sure. I was so impressed by Pep Guardiola at... Um, Man City, he dropped Aguero because he wasn't playing the way he wanted him to. Aguero, of all yeah. people, <laughs> drop him. And I think that's the sort of thing that only a manager can see. And fans who write in based on their 90 minutes or even their lifetime of watching and not really fully understanding football, hmm. they'll never understand it. In the end, the manager has to pick the team that gives him what he wants. And if that means dropping Aguero, so be it. Yeah. So there we go. Kenny Douglas is a moaning, whinging, bad loser and all round crybaby. There we go. So, Leash is a very was a very very fine player and and a, and a, a fine man. Yeah, um, 
especially in the way he conducted himself after Hillsborough. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of admiration for the man. Yeah. I think a, a lot of the people who I hear speaking about, who know Kenny Douglas, say that he's, he's nothing like the persona that you see. So after a match of that, where he's been interviewed, he's nothing like that. He's got a really dry, quick wit and, you know, sense of humour. And that, that's yeah. the thing, it's like you, you don't see... Again, it's it's like you see players in the park and you form your judgments on that's what they're like off the park. But, you know, most of the time you couldn't be further from the truth. You know, you, you get quiet people who go into the park and become animals. And you get people who are animals off the park who go into the park and they're really calm and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's football, isn't it? Hmm. It is. And, and, you know, again, having been a CEO and got, got to know some of the players, some of the nicest, most gentle intelligent, thoughtful, perhaps a better word than intelligent, players you can meet off the pitch. I would not want to be within 10 yards from on the pitch. Yeah. Absolutely frightening people. Yeah, yeah. Just their physical presence. Yeah. Uh, but, but one of the things it seems to me that you get at a club like like FC Wimbledon, and you don't get others, is actually get a chance to meet these people. You know, the, it, I've not been to Spurs New Stadium, which apparently is absolutely magnificent, but the way I read it, if you pay an extra zillion pounds, you can watch the players come out through what looks like to me the equivalent of going to an aquarium or seeing them come out through the tunnel. Mm -hmm. um, you come to Wimbledon and you come into the bar afterwards as long as you can get in. Um, the players will be up on stage, you've been asked questions, all sorts of um, potentially inappropriate questions. And, <laughs> and, the, and there's always a couple of other players there mingling with the crowd. Yeah. I said, damn sight easier to do that when you're winning than when you're losing. But... Um, I think getting access to players makes it easier for fans to live with the team when they're not playing well, because the people you know now instead of people that you can abuse from a distance with no comeback. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to, to, Tom and I, as, as we've mentioned before, we're Clyde Bank supporters, and, and we 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 have that sort of access to players as well, just because th there isn't a barrier put in place, and so you know we develop relationships with them, and it just makes you feel closer to the club. Uh, and, and you know it's it's so much it's so much better being a football fan where you where you can have that um, interaction with them than than somebody. Absolutely. And I think it's better for the players too, which is perhaps the other side that's not immediately obvious. When I was I, I interviewed about about eighty people for writing my book, about eight, ten, maybe even a dozen of them were players, and talking to them, and they said there's one in particular guy called Alan Bennett who was a centre back once who said. You know, I get every game I turn up, I um, I park in the car park where the fans are out drinking beer in the open air because that's the nature of the ground we had. And you get a consistent theme from all the fans of how we are, who we are, where we've come from. And you begin to realise that what you're part of with a club like, like ours and indeed a club like Clydebank is the way you fought back against the odds is that you're part of something special, something mm. different. And it does make a difference to how you feel about going into training it makes a difference to how you feel about playing. I'm not sure you become a much better player on the pitch, but you do get a better sense of, well, maybe you do, but a sense of commitment and belonging. Yeah. And I think you can ever get at a place where the players are kept completely away from the fans. And that's why I, mean, I, I must now make a point of coming to see Clyde Bank play. I've only ever been to one game in Scotland. That was East Fife yeah. right. a few years ago. Um, I must come and see and, and experience the same sort of feeling I get at Wimbledon. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, yeah, that's what I was, I was saying to you. Um, bef before Eric, that's how Clay Bank 
fans have a bit of an affinity with AFC Wimbledon. We've watched how how you've how you've grown and how you've fought back and got back into the got back into the league proper and got your your own grounds back at Plough Lane again. Uh, and that's you know I mean and any sort of links we could forge between Claybank and Wimbledon, sort of Bankies fans would be, would be delighted. Well, I'll, 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 I will find a way. Now that I'm retired, yeah. uh, I will find a way um, to get to some of the grounds I've not been to in the anarchy way that you do visit grounds. Yeah. So I'm determined to go to our away game at Lincoln this year. I've never been there. But also to come and visit some of the teams, including Clyde Banks on my list now. I genuinely was unaware of um, the trauma you'd been through. And the fight back, which is the most important. Yeah, absolutely. It's much, much the same, much the same thing as yourselves, and run about the same time as well. It was two thousand and two. Yes, completely in parallel, wasn't it? The same year. Yeah, yeah. And, and in both cases, she'd absolutely never been allowed to, never been allowed to harm. Yeah, the the, the um, anomaly for me, the, the paradox for me, is that you know the, the question I always found hardest to answer was, well, given what a good time you've had, aren't you glad it actually happened now? <laughs> Um, and the answer, I think, has to be, it should never have happened, it shouldn't have been allowed to happen, but now that it has, we've made the best of it. Yeah. But, but yeah, I mean, it changed my life. Um, I went from being a partner in an accountancy firm to, to running, I mean, if you can't play football, to get close to it in the way that I did is the best thing, the best thing in, in, yeah. not in the world. Your family is the best thing in the world, but not far off it. And to understand it, to have a manager come in, the, I didn't say much to them. I never used to talk to a manager after a game because um, the last thing they want is me moaning to him or only turning up when we'd won. On a Monday morning, I'd asked him to explain the game to me. Tell me what was happening before a game. Tell me what the tactics are. What should I be looking for? And start to understand a side of football that I never had before. These are real privileges for me who is just a schoolboy footballer and not much at it. So... And I think at Clyde Bank, certainly the people who are running it get that same privilege. What a delight. What a pleasure it is. Yeah. It, we'll, we'll get a wee bit um, deeper into, into your, 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 your time. Yeah, here. Sorry, talk I've, I've changed the subject completely. And I, I'm, we'll talk, we'll talk I'm about looking at a picture a few of minutes. and remembering um, uh, him and Laurie Sanchez on the screen again, and it brings me back to Wimbledon. Yeah, so uh, the, the first page, page 19, is the private life of Andy Thorne. Of, uh, of Wimbledon, and uh, just picking out a couple of uh, answers to his questions. So a few wee digs at his teammates there. Says, who is your most famous friend outside football? Jockey Bill Bill Noons and Alan Cork. So presumably a wee, a wee dig at Alan Cork's football ability. And uh, he's asked, um, which other sportsman would you, you most like to be and why? Laurie Sanchez, so I could have his money. Uh, he says, who have you been uh, you mistaken for anyone? And he says, yes, Rodney of Lonely Fools and Horses. <laughs> uh, what if anything frightens you, my girlfriend and her mum? Uh, so, yeah, a lot of sort of cheeky answers, as was the, the, the kind of want at the time of a footballer's answering these kind of questionnaires. So, uh, Andy Thorne, uh, Eric, memories of, of him? Well, he was... Um one of the two centre-backs, along with Eric Young, the one who I mentioned earlier, yeah. um, got his chance against Watford. Um, I mean, my main memory of him is that, uh, allegedly, because I wasn't as closely involved in, in the club at, at that time as I am now, that um, after the game, um, 
Sam Hamam, the owner's basic attitude was, blimey, look at the value of the players I've got now and how much I can sell them for. Hmm. And Andy Thorne was one of the ones that he made a good profit on. He sold him to um, Newcastle United, if I remember right, uh, as indeed Dave Besant. Um, he sold him there too. Uh, he's a fine centre-back, uh, but for me, my memory of him, sadly, is uh, he was seen as just a saleable asset by Sam. A yeah. very mercenary attitude to um, to the team. I think he's a, he's a manager. I can't remember who. He's a manager now, is he? He has been a manager. I thought... Uh, I'm in danger of getting mixed up, but I think I thought he was a manager at um, one of the non-league clubs near us, uh, Walton. Mm. I think I'm right about that. Yeah. I think. Could be getting confused there. But um, he's one of those... I mean, of that team... Again, drifting sort of back to OC Wimbledon, several of them clearly regard us as whatever continuity you consider to be between Wimbledon FC and AFC Wimbledon. He's not one of the ones who comes, but um, Sanchez has been, John Scales has been, John Fashnu has been occasionally, um, Alan Cork has been, um, Terry Gibson has been. They, um, they, so for me, my main link with them, my main getting to know them, are the ones who've been to visit us and, and be able to chat to them in the boardroom or in the sponsors' lounge after a game. I don't recall Andy being one of those. Okay, well, if we go over the page then, so this is the, the team group. Uh, so this is uh, Reading Simod Cup Sensation. So Simod Cup is like the full members' cup, um, which was a cup competition for English clubs in the lower, in the lower leagues. And this is a picture of the Reading team uh, with the trophy after they've beaten Luton Town 4-1 uh, on Sunday the 27th of March at Wembley in front of 61,740. So the Redden are wearing their, uh, their away kit, which is, I'm not sure, Andy, what you would call that. have an orange strip they're in with um, navy blue and, and light blue trim uh, with a sponsor courage across it. Yeah, it's a Patrick kit as well, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's it's a strange one because I was I was looking at the the badge because the badge looks a bit sort of plain but not a sort of badge you would associate with Redden. And I went and looked up on it, so it was adopted in 1987 after a couple of seasons without one. Now rumours are that it was designed by Ian Bramfoot, the manager's daughter, that his daughter designed <laughs> it, and it's but it's probably the most iconic badge given that they won the Seymour Cup and got promoted from the into the second division or won the second division championship but there, there's nothing there's nothing really other than the, it was a club colours at the time for the design there's nothing that really says this is reading about it so I just thought that was a really strange little quirk that you know if it is one of the most iconic it's it's one that just happened you know out of nowhere it's a strange competition this isn't it this is the competition for Leagues 1 and Leagues 2 now, although yeah. they weren't called that at the time, isn't it? And I think you could probably have a very good quiz question on the various names that have been given to that yeah. competition over the years. Um, it was when we first got into play it from League 2, it was the Johnson's Paint Trophy, or the Paint Pot as it was known. Um, and since then, I've forgotten who its current sponsors are because um, it's a competition that I think for me... Um, been ruined by allowing the well th there's this big thing about um premier league b teams uh playing in the league and the 
the back door to it was seen to be them getting a toehold and playing in this competition. Yeah. And the Football League uh, board put forward the proposition that they should be allowed to play each season. They, they threw in something like a million quid, I think, the Premier League teams, in order for, I think it's 16 um, effectively academy teams to join in and play each year, um, which we opposed violently because we saw it as a, a thin end of the wedge to um, B teams. And that whole subject surfaced again not so long ago when the then FA chairman suggested that B teams was possibly one of the ways forward for football. For me, it, it's, it makes it a completely irrelevant cup and one that I've never even bothered going to watch. Yeah. The only time it's worth playing in is if you get to the final at Wembley when you make a bit of money and you have a, yeah. a fun day out. But uh, not a competition I like or endorse. I really don't like it at all. But looking at the picture here, I see we've got Keith Curl playing for um, Reading, who went on to, who, who played for Wimbledon, I think then went to Man City and yeah. subsequently, is he now, last time I saw him, and I don't keep completely up to date with this, I think his manager at Carlisle, maybe he's moved on from there. Yeah, he's moved on from there, he lost the job at Carlisle, can't remember who he's in charge of now, he's, he's back in management. In Northampton, I think, or... Oldham Athletic, I think it is, is that? Yeah. Oh, Oldham, okay, yeah. sorry. A very, a, a very cultured, fine centre-back. Yeah. Really quality player. There's, a, there's another player in there, Gary Peters, who played at Wimbledon as well, 82 to 84, yes. and he was a club captain when they won promotion to Division 2 in 83 84. So he's in there as well. Because I only started following Wimbledon when my boys adopted them, mm. although I know the name, um, I never saw him play, sadly. But I did recognise the name when I saw it. Yeah, and just another player I'm going to, or not player, but a, a coach, the, he's just on the far right hand corner, Stuart Henderson. And he played with Brighton and Reading as well, so he was a, a Scottish player. Um, but the other thing I've just noticed about we're talking about the strips. So the goalkeeper top is, is I don't know if you notice, but they've got the courage sponsor above the badge on the oh, goalkeeper yeah. top, top mm. which is you know, and the, the the outfield strips. It's a badge and then the sponsor. So yeah, that was just something that I noticed there, which is a bit unusual. Yeah. The goalkeeper tops red, which isn't that dissimilar from the sort of orange outfield kit. All right, over to you then, Andy. Yep. Okay, so we're going to do a focus on yourself, Eric. So I'm going to uh, send a number of questions your way. So if you just give me your answers. Okay, Uh, full name? John Eric Samuelson. It seems to be a northern thing to use your middle name. It's not very common down here. Right. What's your birthplace? Sunderland. What was your first car? Uh, it was a, a sit-up-and-beg-afford popular. Um, you need to be a certain age to recognise that. It was it was a particularly unroadworthy vehicle, which <laughs> about 60 needed at least two lanes on the motorway. And it had this wonderful uh, windscreen wiper that was vacuum-driven. Right. So if you got a pillow, it's slow to barely crawling across the screen. And if you then freewheeled down the other side, it would it would be... Demented. <laughs> it only had three forward gears. Reverse was where most cars are first. Yeah. I drove my dad's car all the time. And many times I shot off backwards from traffic lights and put it in reverse. Anyway, sorry. Everybody uh, has fond memories of their first car. And mm. Mine certainly. It cost me £30. Right. What colour was it? It was beigey form. It did 400 miles to the gallon of oil. Mm. It, was, it was a very old car. Um, but I loved it dearly. 
Brilliant. Okay, who, who's your favourite player of all time? Well, I'd like to restrict it to ones I saw play. And I think um, probably Jim Baxter. Right. Being from Sunderland and supporting Sunderland, a team where England never picked any of our players. We had a lot of Scots players in the team and I always felt an affinity to, to, to Scottish players and the Scotland team. And we were fortunate that he came to play to us, even though he was past his best. But I saw him play with the Scottish League against the Football League at Roker Park once in a game where Alan Gilzean also played mm. and Jimmy Greaves right. and um, Neil Martin, who went on to play for Sunderland. And I remember watching him on a frosty pitch thinking, how can anybody be that good? Phenomenal player. Such a shame. Uh, a wasted talent in mm. some way, ways. Yeah. Okay. Who's your favourite team? Uh, it has to be AFC Wimbledon. If you ask me for a second team, um, well, as I said, I've never seen them in Scotland. It's Hearts. And internationally, my second team is the Faroe Islands because my great-granddad right. came south to Sunderland for the weather, as I say, um, in the 1880s. And so that's the land of my father's. So mm -hmm. um, I, I keep an eye on them. They don't win very often, but I keep an eye on them. Excellent. What's the most memorable match that you've seen? Um, I think, well, there's probably, I'm going to, sorry, I'm going to cheat and say this too. There's a 1973 Cup final for Sunderland, where as a League Two team, as a, as a championship team in the modern uh, parlance, we beat Leeds, who are probably one of the best three teams in Europe. And I used to use that as a sort of standing post in my life. You know, I got married two years after we won the cup, I used to say, which didn't particularly amuse my wife, but that's, <laughs> that's how I used to measure things. <laughs> also, a game Wimbledon played, um, we were stuck, we were stagnating in the Ryman League, which is, um, if Manchester United in League One, I guess it's League Five, Six, League Eight. Yeah. We've been in our third season, and we're in a playoff final, and with 10 minutes to go, we were losing, and then in the, in the ways of the most memorable games, like those are the ones you remember best, are the ones where you've just about given up yeah. and then you score a couple of goals and, and the, the satisfaction of getting out of a league that was really in danger of stifling us and the thrill. There's nothing better than a last-minute goal, as long as it's yours. <laughs> yeah. There's nothing worse than a conceding one. So, yeah, those, those two games, very different levels, very different atmospheres, but both of them are hugely memorable. Mm. You talk about thrills there. What has been your biggest thrill in your life? Well, I think it's yet to come. Um, I hope it is. When um, we've just, we're currently playing games at the new Plough Lane Stadium, but not with fans allowed. But when at this, I hope at the beginning of August, when we play Bolton in our first ever competitive game, never mind a friendly, a competitive game with a capacity crowd, I hope. And the teams come out for that, and hopefully they crowd raises the roof yeah um that will be quite a moment when you think where we came from when you know better than most because you're Clyde Bank roots um that's going to be some moment uh, some moment indeed yeah what's been your biggest disappointment <laughs> I'll restrict it to football <laughs> um uh, I, I can't honestly uh, I'm, I'm really struggling with that because yeah, the, the whole point about football is, uh, as somebody once said to me, you can't have a life of eating nothing but ice cream. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, or put it another way, if you don't have any pain, you don't really appreciate the pleasure. 
So, you know, we've had pro probably the, the relegation of Wimbledon FC from the Premier League to the Championship is probably the biggest heartache because it, it caused the series of events or was a significant part of the series of events that led to the Wimbledon FC being allowed to go to Milton Keynes. Hmm. But being there on a day, I went to the game thinking we needed to match the performance of Bradford that day. Bradford were playing Liverpool and needed to win, I think, to get into Europe, uh, to be certain of going into Europe. And we were playing away at Southampton. And my view was we'd probably lose, but we'd still be okay because Liverpool would beat Bradford. And Bradford went and beat them and we got relegated. And it was gut-wrenching driving my two sons home after that and complete silence in the car. Anybody who's had a team that's been relegated, and most football fans have, will know that feeling. It's a horrendous feeling. Yeah. Okay, what's the best country that you've visited? My favourite country, um, after, after I qualified as an accountant, my wife and I saved up and we backpacked, well, we took a bus to Kathmandu from, from Streatham High Road <laughs> um, in South London, and then we backpacked across Asia, and the country I liked most, although I wouldn't feel able to go there now, was what was then called Burma. It's an amazing country, beautiful places, beautiful temples, handsome people, many of them in the national dress, just as a way of living. Uh, that and, and um, a close second, um, India. But my favourite place was up in the, high, in the high hills in Afghanistan, a place called Bandi Amir, which was just some massive lakes, some, I believe some of the highest lakes on the planet. Um, you can't wonder how they got there, but uh, anyway, it was a, the whole journey was a phenomenal experience. But anyway, come back to the first question, Burma, and in particular a place called Shui Dagon, which is a temple in the middle of Rangoon. If you ever, ever got the chance to go there and, felt, and your conscience would allow you, given what it's like now, that's a place not to be missed. Mm, I'll look that up. What's your favourite food? Oh, I'm a very basic... Um, to be honest, if I if I could have egg chips and baked beans, I'd be completely happy. I, uh, I'm not even. I wouldn't even begin to. Well, as a friend of mine said, the trouble with the restaurants that he tends to get taken to is you get food that looks more like it should be hung on the wall than eaten. <laughs> um, I like something plain and simple. I'm fine with that. Miscellaneous like so. Give me two things that you like to do. Um. I'm, when I retired, I made it uh, a policy that every morning before I did anything, I would read the paper from beginning to end, just just to keep up, uh, which I like to do. The other like is, um, he doesn't particularly like me talking about it, but my younger son has a band, and I love going and standing next to the, um, the guy at the back, the sound engineer who manages the sound, because after all, he set it up so that he could hear perfectly, so that's the place to stand. <laughs> Excellent. So on the flip side, give me two things that you really can't stand. Uh, I, I, keeping it to football for now, I have a real problem with... Um, there's so much football on, I have every sympathy for the guys. But I'm, I wrote a chapter in my book, which eventually I didn't put in, about um, the languages used in football and the, um, the cliches that are that are rolled out by commentators. And I know it's hard for them and it must be really difficult. You know, there's only once in a while you get the, they think it's all over, people on the pitch who think it's all over. Mm. Or the Barry Davis one, I think it was, look at his face, look at his face, <laughs> that sort of stuff. 
but really um, the use of language like a bad day at the office. I mean, this is the game you all want to play. This is the game you love. It's the romantic game. Don't belittle it by talking about it being at the office, for God's sake. Mm -hmm. When people are talking at the coalface, they've never been near a coalface. I get very irritated by that, as must be apparent from the change of tone in my voice. <laughs> Why can't they? Anyway, so yeah. um, that, that gets to me. Although I've, I've met some commentators, and I know from talking to them how difficult it is for them to yeah. bring it to life without dropping into cliches, um, game of two halves sort of stuff. So I dislike that. Um, to be honest, mm. I, I agree with that one enough that we can we can have that as both of them. If, if, if you want. <laughs> so okay, because I've been very fortunate in my life. There's not a lot I don't, not a lot I hmm. dislike intensely. Okay, what's been your favourite TV show of all time? Um, depends what age you've asked me. I I think uh, it's a it's a close run thing between The West Wing mm -hmm. and The Clangers. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's so, a. So it depends, as I said, what age you ask me. Yeah. Uh, the, West, the West Wing is, is a wildly romanticised of what a, what a decent American president might be able to do and, and puts into stark contrast the sort of politics we've got in America and indeed in Britain right mm. now. But that's pro that's not a subject to get into here. Yeah. I think, I, I mean, I the West Wing is one of my favourites of all time and it's simply because it can, it can move you in extreme directions it's like you can be bubbling away crying or you know getting really emotional and then the next minute you're laughing and it's yeah it's it's absolutely fantastic if anybody hasn't seen the west wing then they really are missing out and as you say it's this idea that this is what could be possible you know to have somebody with, with such a high you know high standards and such a a positive human being things like that but We'd also put through the most significant trauma and, and conscience searching over anybody who's not watched it. They, a big decision about whether or not you should uh, assassinate somebody from another mm. country because mm. they're so evil and malevolent. Um, I think it was all done beautifully, with the exception of one series where I think all the American writers were on strike. Yeah. It was a bit below par, but it's a wonderful series. Yeah. And in terms of comedies, my favourite is um, Thinner Ladies. I love Victoria hey. Wood. Very funny lady. And it's a beautiful piece of ensemble performance. Brilliant. Okay. Okay, final question. Which person in the world would you most like to meet? It's funny, really. I, I, I've met I met three prime ministers. Um, okay. uh, two after they've been prime minister, one before the current one. Only one of them even made the slightest impression upon me. And when I became a partner in what's now PwC, I thought I was going to meet really famous senior people and be impressed by them. And at the end, it's the same with football. You meet them and you think, oh, they're just people. They're just people. Um, and that was a, there's only two or three people I've ever met where I felt when they came into a room, I had to sit them a bit straighter. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I like that, that, that as you got closer to people. So who do I want to meet? I'd... I'd I'm not sure I would to survive, but I think I'd enjoy hugely spending an hour with Frankie Boyle. <laughs> Brilliant, that's a great answer, yeah. Very, very funny man. Yeah. Absolutely disgraceful, some of the things oh. he says, but very funny. I mean, I've, I've seen him live a, a few times, and I saw him live with my, one of my brothers and his and his, his missus, and at the end, his missus had that, like, a really, her face was, like, tripping her, and he said, what's the matter with you? And she said, I, I didn't like that. 
I said, but you were laughing all the way through. And that, that's typical of it. It's like, it, you know, you can't, it, it's sort of like, ha <laughs> oh, that, that, that's in the reaction to, to Frankie Boyle. It's laugh first and then sort of why I shouldn't be laughing at that. But he's brilliant. Absolutely, absolutely brilliant. Yeah. A comic genius. Yeah. Okay, Tom, back to you. All right, okay, Eric. So let's talk a wee bit about your book. So your book, All, right, uh, yeah. all Together Now, and it's uh, published by Pitch Publishing. So it's available all good bookshops and online. So, and it's this story of AFC Wimbledon and your, not just your part in it, but you're, you're, you're certainly a, a character throughout the, throughout the book. So if you can start off by telling us just what made you think this is, I'm going to put this down as a, a book and sort of how you started going about to get all your memories together. I've read a, not a lot, but a fair number of football books and sports books generally. I'm, I'm, I really enjoy cricket too. Um, and the one that made the biggest impression on me was a book by a player called Gary Nelson, um, self-described journeyman footballer who never quite made it to the Premier League for Brighton and then Charlton and he described the everyday life of a professional footballer and I thought what an insight that gave compared to well, it's a bit like the difference between staring at players through a glass wall and meeting them you actually get to see what it's like to be oh, to be carried off at a match with half the crowd hoping that you've yeah. broken your leg to go into a playoff final and lose to have all those sorts of descriptions and, and the, the sheer mundanity of the, the four of you driving from Brighton to Charlton every day to, to train and what training's like. And I enjoyed that because it gave me insight football fans never get. And I thought when it came to AFC Wimbledon, A, it's a really good story. You know, uh, all our club ripped away and moved up the motorway. Uh, a group of fans saying, we're not having that. Um, four in particular. Sadly, I wasn't one of those four saying we're going to start again and ending up back in the league, in League One in the same league as the team that took our club away from us and briefly above them, in the league above them, and in a brand new stadium that we built and belongs to us and still all the time owned by fans. Yeah. It's a fantastic story. I thought if I could tell that, but tell it through the eyes of someone who's been on the inside. I've read books by managers, books by players. I've never read books by somebody who was there that saw everything, the business side and the football side. So I thought... I don't know if I can write it, but uh, who's better place to write a real inside story than me? So I thought, well, I'm going to. I was encouraged by a couple of people I know who are professional journalists and authors. And um, she said, well, that's it. I'm going to do it. And made myself sit down and do it. It's it's quite quite onerous, I found. <laughs> it's, a, it's an entertaining story. And you're going to, you make a lot of the nuts and bolts quite entertaining because there's there's periods about finance and about how you hired managers and why you sacked managers. And there's, there's a lot of stuff that you've, you've made quite interesting, which could, you know, could be a little tedious in, uh, in, other, in, other, in other hands, but it, it, all reads, it all reads really well and it's very entertaining and there's lovely wee, uh, lovely wee stories just at that sort of lower end of football. Like I'd said to you before about how Dave Anderson got recruited to his first interview at a little chef while he was he he, he was um taking a, a breakfast stop from his job as a, a trucker 
and he get interviewed while he was talking into a belly buster breakfast. <laughs> I just, I just love that. I just love the sort of mundanity and that. That we just having to fit that into his work and life kind of thing. And that was his first impression, but he still got a job. Yeah, yeah. I, I, it, it. The thing about football is almost everybody in football um, is a good storyteller. Yeah. If you sit down and talk to them, they will tell you some really good stories. And then the, the, the trick is to try and distill it all into something that is coherent. But, uh, and, and keeps the fun of it. I mean, there's a story in there about a guy who, unless you've got the very end, you would have found it, who was just desperate. Our physio was desperate to be on the pitch at Wembley. And he agreed with the, one of his friends, one of the players, that he'd mime a dead leg or a cramp or something. <laughs> so that he got on the pitch. And sure enough, after 75 minutes, this, this lad goes down and, and Stuart, the physio, races across the pitch and he's saying, oh, mate, mate, that's fantastic. I go across the whole pitch. I'm on telly. I'm on the pitch at Wembley. And the player says, I'm injured. <laughs> and I thought, oh, I, just, I just loved that. That, mm. um, that the child in him that wants to be on telly and, and get on the Wembley pitch. <laughs> and then the irony of when he gets on the pitch, he's actually got to do his job because the bloke's, the bloke's pulled up injured. Um, and there's lots of stories like that. That's my particular favourite of just what happens in everyday life in football. They're interesting people and they've got stories to tell. I was just going to, did you keep a, like, say a diary or anything like that through the years or was no. this just something no. that you... I, uh, I had to research it. I had, um, I'm very fortunate. The, the club had its own website for the first 10, 11, 12 years. And although it's tucked away out of sight on the internet, if you know where to look, it's still there. There's nothing secret about it. So I had every news item we'd ever published about the club from yeah. over the August after we formed. We formed in the May, June, um, right through at the end of our first season in the Football League. And then I had, I have something like 9,000 emails still in my in-tray mm. and probably four or five times as many filed. I've got all of them. I've got the minutes of all the board meetings. I've got, you know, I just kept them on my laptop. I've got, I, maybe I shouldn't have them. Copies of, um, I don't know, um, when we went to a tribunal with a player uh, that someone had signed and we couldn't agree a fee. I've got all the detail of that. I've got the interview notes, which I've just returned to the club just recently. Um, all the CVs and interview notes and what we thought of the managers when we appointed them. Hmm. I had just far too much information. And then, as I said, I interviewed 80 people. Yeah. Um, all of whom had something interesting to say and... and I was pleased to find that none of them told me anything completely scandalous that I was unaware of. <laughs> it was my big fear there's some sort of skeleton in the cupboard. And, and they're great storytellers. So the fun bit was interviewing people because you just chat to them yeah. and they tell you things you didn't know and give of themselves more than they meant to. The hard bit is then saying, I've got to write it now. You know, I read about Stephen King who gets up at eight o'clock in the morning, writes till one, has a coffee and lunch then reads for two hours, and if he doesn't like it, he tears it all up. And that's his routine. <laughs> I, you said, I read the newspaper every morning because that's my promise, and about 10 o'clock I start, and about half past it's time for a cup of tea. And then at 11 o'clock there's a test match on. <laughs> and uh, I don't have the powers of concentration these people. It was so difficult to make myself sit down and do it. But yeah. I approached it a bit like the way I did when I gave up smoking a long time ago. I told so many people I was going to do it. I was too embarrassed not to. Yeah. Yeah. Finally finished it. 
18 months after my first interview. It got published 18 months after my first interview. And that's the, that's the key point. The moment you interview somebody and say, I'm writing a book, well, you owe it to them. You have to do it then. And have you had much feedback on it from the people uh, people involved now that it's, uh, it's out? Yeah. Um, I, I, the feedback, I tried to write it for f- people who were, and I don't mean this in a belittling way, just football fans, not Wimbledon fans, because I love yeah. the Wimbledon story. I was trying to do what Gary Nelson did, was talk about the wider aspects of football. Um, it's two in particular. John Motson rang me up. Uh, I'd met him through through the club, of course. He just rang me up on Sunday and said, I absolutely loved it, loved every minute of it. It was fantastic. So he kindly allowed me to quote that. Mm. And Henry Winter, the Times football writer, yeah. um, tweeted about it and just said, it's a great read. Um, and as, he's, as, as you've said, um, with extraordinary level of detail, which it is. So, yeah. So that, I, I, I treasure that because, of course, your family is going to say they've enjoyed it. Of course <laughs> um, it's when somebody who's got no axe to grind other than they read it that you, that you really value that. Yeah, but I would, I would absolutely recommend it, like you say, to any football football fans, uh, fans that like reading about football, because there's lots of lots of great wee stories, lots of stuff with the nuts and bolts, and and uh, you know there's, there's things like you talk about the stewarding and, and things like that. It's just really, really interesting and in how things like that go wrong, and it's interesting as well how you learn, how you, you tell a story of, of how you're you're learning how to manage football matches and how to manage crowds and. And the finances and all that kind of stuff. You're telling the story of the mistakes that you made. We had absolutely no idea what we were doing. <laughs> One of the things, just in passing, that encouraged me to write this was um, when I was 11, I got sent to school in Newcastle. So I lost touch with all my friends at that age, nearly all of them. And 57 layers later, we were, as, as in the Royal Box of Wembley, standing next to the trophy being awarded. And a couple of days later, I got an email from the a kid I knew when I was 11, 57 years later, saying, is that you? <laughs> uh, and I met up with these kids who were, my, who were in my football team at that age. And I was talking about Wimbledon, I, and I was talking about everyday stuff, and they were saying, we never hear about this sort of stuff. This is really interesting. And mm. I thought, that's what made me think back to Gary Nelson, that football fans, especially of big teams like Sunderland, all right, they're in the doldrums at the moment, they're a big team, don't get to hear this stuff, and I think it's worth knowing. I've found it fascinating, so I hoped other people would too. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, hopefully it'll, uh, hopefully it'll sell well, uh, Eric. Uh, if it doesn't, it's yeah. I used to say the manager when we lost, nobody died. <laughs> we'll, we'll be, all, we'll all be okay. Hey, all right. Will we get back into the back into the magazine? Yeah. Now? So we're sort of more than halfway. Yes, of course, of course. Oh, Stuart McCall, all of the hairstyles in those days were brilliant, weren't they? Yeah, so it's, it's, it's McCall. Uh, McCall's proud to be a Scot and glad I spurned England. McCall got selected for the England under-21s and uh, was was going to play for them, but I think he was a substitute and it didn't actually didn't actually get on. I think I was wrongly advised at the time, explained Stuart. I had only half an hour to make up my mind and it wasn't really enough. Uh, so he was he was selected think, for England and Scotland. It says it was a great honour to be chosen for England, but I began to regret what I'd done even before the game. I was made substitute, but never got on the pitch, and I'm glad now that I didn't. Interesting wee thing to you know from from this wee piece is that uh, Jock Steen refused to select him again after he turned Scotland down. He played for England under twenty ones. The article says that Jock, Jock Steen uh, imposed an exile on him. 
I thought that was that was that was interesting. Yeah. It, it, it's as you said. Uh, I mean, I think that's petty. Uh, but as you said earlier, there's a lot, an awful lot of pettiness in football. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember seeing Stuart McCall play. He was a fine player. He was in a, a he was in that mould of players, maybe slightly taller than Billy Bremner, but but um, there was a type of midfield player who was smallish, very industrious quality on the ball um, that, that was at the heart of an awful lot of very successful teams. They're less visible nowadays than they used to be. But um, you know, players like, um, not just him, but Johnny Giles, players like that, real quality players uh, at the heart of each field. And he, he was a particularly fine player, I think. I didn't realise he'd, until I saw this, that he'd once almost played for England. It, for me, was as Scottish as you get. Yeah, well, obviously, he did, he did a decent career. I was Stuart McCall with Everton and uh, Rangers and Scotland, and he absolutely gave his all every time he played. Every time he's he a manager played. now, or I don't know if he still is at the moment, but the last time I saw him managing, he was managing Bradford. Yeah. yeah I'm, not sure, I'm not sure if he's still there. But I, I don't think it mentions it in this article, but I read in somewhere, if a different one, that, you know, the saying that he was um, an unused sub, apparently he was told to go warm up and he went right to the end of the, the pitch and basically wasted time, so he, he didn't get on. So he actually made a concerted effort. At that point, he, he'd made up his, you know, he'd made up his mind. Thought, I've made a mistake here. I, if I go on, that's it. So he actually wasted time to get on. Didn't didn't end up getting on. Which, uh, you know, it, it's you know, talking about Jock Stein basically spurning him, and it's like. You know, he, he's been he's been great for the teams he's been in, um, whether they be league teams or the national team. And just to think that we may have missed out on that. Maybe back then, we wouldn't have thought it would have been that much of a miss. But, you know, knowing what we know, then he was absolutely, you know, a, a really good performer for, for any team that he played for. And I, I, in a slightly reluctant way, I quite admire that. It's, uh, actually, I shouldn't be here. I'm going to go out of my way to make it difficult to put him on the pitch. I like, I like that. Yeah, good for him. Uh, so, do you want me to go over the over the page again? So, match superstore down the left hand side there. So, this is the usual uh, adverts for programs and things like that. The big, the big advert on it is a Glenn Hoddle VHS portrait of a soccer superstar filmed on location in Monte Carlo. So a picture of Glenn Hoddle in training there. It's a new video filmed in Monte Carlo. See Glenn as goal scorer, goalkeeper, pop star and family man. I've never been into uh, memorabilia. You can possibly just see on my shoulder there's three or four photos that I've got on my wall. Um, one of them is the winning goal in the 73 Cup final. Two of them are Wimbledon, a penalty save. And the other one is... Um, a famous photo of Tom Finney at Stamford Bridge, if I lean to one side, um, in the days when you were allowed to play in sort of three inches of oh, right, yeah. I, I don't, I don't understand why people buy shirts and hang them on their walls, and I don't know. I, I just, I just don't get it. Um, but I guess it's, it's, it's as close as some people can get to their, to their favourites. Seems odd to me. Uh, you spotted anything there, Andy, on that that page there? It's... Uh, no, nice. nothing, nothing really on that page. I'm waiting for the next page. Okay, so the next page is Match Chat, the column that takes you inside soccer. So this is a lot of these sort of, uh, snippets of things 
going uh, going on uh, in and around football at the time. So, Andy, what yeah, have you spotted? So, so the, the one at the top, Soccer Smile, and this is, says, a group of football managers have got together to record a new record called The Worst Song Ever in a bid to raise <laughs> money for sports aid. Our picture shows Brian Clough about to try and get a high note out of Dave Bassett. So I, I don't know, were you aware of this, Eric? Were you aware of this song? No. Uh, I think you probably, there are probably several songs that qualify for that title anyway. Um, no, I'm complete, I was completely unaware of it. Right. So, so, so we're in for a treat then. So we're going to play it now. Um, <laughs> So um, before we do, there, there was a couple other articles on this in different magazines. So there's this one here from, a, I think it was a shoot magazine. And it says, why are Brian Clough and Alex Ferguson playing Subutio? So it's a photograph of Brian Clough playing Subutio against Alex Ferguson, which is just a, a great, just a great moment um, in football for me. And then we've got the next one, which is exclusive boss squad souvenirs to be won. And you can see them all in the in the studio, um, singing away there. And it's it's basically all the the top managers of the time that are in there. But but so so I'm just about to. Hopefully this this will work okay. So let's just sit back for the next three and a half minutes and enjoy this. <laughs> Good day to you. This is the prime minister talking down to you. There now follows an important government announcement. So please pay attention. The record you're about to hear can seriously damage your eardrums, and one doesn't want to be an extra burden on the health service. So you have been warned. Turn down the jukebox, put your earplugs in. This is the worst song ever, it doesn't even rip. With singing that is out of key and words that hardly barely even fit. Springsteen. 
some people are running onto the pitch. They think it's all over. It's not over yet. Yeah, that's terrible. No, I, I don't know. I, well, it's terrible, but it's quite a nice self-parody, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's terrible done in a good way. Yeah. It's just the... the um, Graham Taylor was getting right into it as well. I, I thought he was, he was really, really enjoying it. But um, no, it's, it's something that I, I, um, I found years ago because through the magazines, and it was just like, I can't believe... This isn't this isn't known by everyone, you know. It's like did you find it on YouTube? Is it, 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 no, you can't actually get it on YouTube. Um, it was on a different. It was on a web page, which then was removed. But I managed to when when I was um, preparing for this, I managed to find it somewhere else, and I've taken a copy of it. So, so I, I'm gonna gonna say the people have always spit an image that have, that have written it. Yeah, um, I've spotted Philip Pope. Uh, and there is a sort of musical director. Yep. Um, he done the music for uh, Spitting Images songs, and there was Steve Nealon at the beginning. There is Margaret yep. Thatcher, and uh, Chris Barry was, yep. was there doing the voice of mm. Drank. Well, he got a job when she stepped down, wasn't he? Yeah. And there was um, from Box Fizz at the end as well. Cheryl Baker, Cheryl Baker was in there as well. Yeah. And but it's just, yeah. uh, can you imagine? The current crop of top managers getting into a studio to do that—it just, it just wouldn't happen. They'd be, they'd be like, "I'm not doing it." And I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I know it's for a great cause, but I'm surprised. Like Sir Ferguson and um, all that got involved. It was like you just think they would say, "No, nah, it's not for me. It's not for me." That somebody must have uh, had incredibly good contacts. Yeah, but, um, I, 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 some people I'd not forgotten, but who slipped from my consciousness a long time ago. I mean, George Graham was in there, I think, mm. and Billy Bingham. Yep. Yeah. With Northern Ireland rather than with a club. Yeah. Uh, as a manager. Laurie McMenemy was in there. As I say, as, as I taken the mick out of themselves, I thought yeah. it was very. I thought it was well done. Actually, mm -hmm. I, yeah. wouldn't, I wouldn't. I was singing along with it. But, um... Oh no, no! You say that I've listened to it enough that I'm actually before we came on, and we were, yeah. we were that's what I was just singing away. It, it's catchy. It's catchy. <laughs> well, I can't say being played at Barrowland in November. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay, Tom. Moving on there, so we've got match man of the month, and it's a uh, first class fash, and a picture there, uh, John Fashion going up for a going up for a header. And uh, it's Hummel Boots and uh, the classic Wimbledon blue and yellow uh, kit. Uh, maybe, this, maybe this ball. So, and this is so John Fashnu's uh, top of Division 1 with an average rating of 8.33. And second is uh, Craig Johnson of Liverpool with an 8 rating. And there's a picture of Craig Johnson there in, a, in the Liverpool grey away kit. It's a tough guy striker. John Fashnu staked a further claim for a late England call up. Is the first division's most consistent performer during March. I think he got one or two games for England. Maybe maybe come on as a sub. I'm not entirely sure. But he but he for me he was never an international player. He was an incredibly effective league player, but he was never an international player. Nice he got nice he got a cup. I think it was nice to have recognition, but I, I never saw him as that really. Um, must have been a nightmare to play against. And he was um he used to 
focus on the chat as well as the play, didn't he? You said chat up the referee, make yeah. sure he knew the names of their kids and ask after them before the game. And, and <laughs> that make a difference? It's difficult to know, isn't it? Very difficult to know. But it's nice when somebody takes the trouble to remember whether it affects your decisions. Yeah. Um, Match, uh, describe him as his no-nonsense style. <laughs> yeah, that's a nice uh, euphemism. Uh, all right, we move. We move along then. So we've got this is the, this is the Scottish page, the Scottish scene with uh, Robert Watts, uh, and we've got Walker fits the bill. Celtic scoring sensation Andy Walker has revealed the secret fear that he wouldn't live up to his star billing at Parkhead. Now firmly established as a fan's favourite and knocking on the door of international recognition, the 23-year-old has been a revelation in the Celtic attack this season. Was close on 30 goals to his name. It seems a bit odd to me to have a Scottish page because it seems there's a fair degree of Scottish representation throughout yeah. the magazine until now. And then to squeeze it all into one page, really, just seems a bit weird. Yeah. But the, the page does remind me that um, Wimbledon had um, Neil Sullivan as our goalkeeper, who was one of those not very Scottish Scotsmen. <laughs> yeah. And um, before the games, usually sometimes when they're warming up, there was a bloke who I think, I think it was a history teacher, anyway, he's a, he's a local school teacher, who used to solo um, serenade Neil with Flower of Scotland. <laughs> uh, and Neil's a really nice guy who would sort of put his head down and sort of look away. And then we, we brought him back on loan from Doncaster, where it was AFC Wimbledon. And sure enough, just before his first game for us, there was this guy still supporting us behind the goal, serenading him again with flowers. <laughs> I thought it was absolutely lovely. Yeah. I wasn't a bad keeper for Scotland, to be, to be Good fair. Good goalkeeper. Mm. Uh, I don't quite know what his qualification was, presumably a grandparent. Yeah. But, but, that, um, but that was what we did then. That's what Craig Brown did, just sort of dug for, um, for players, because we had done Hutchison run about that time as well. Yeah. Um, well, I'm not knocking it, uh, but uh, you know he was—he was, he was uh, in every other respect a, an Englishman. I think. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. No, I, I remember him saying from the South Africans, it's not exactly something that England reverse to doing. So I wouldn't. Yeah. No, I remember him saying he was supporting uh, England when England played Scotland in the '96 Euros, and then <laughs> he was playing against England for Scotland in the, that uh, playoff uh, for the Euros in '99. Really nice guy and a very good keeper. Who was the other player, Matt? Um, the no, 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 the defender, the Matt Elliott. Matt Elliott. Yeah, he was with that that period as well, wasn't he? Yeah. So match facts there. Uh, so we're we're going into the 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 scores and the team lineups. Anything you've seen there, Andy? Any results there that stand out for you? Not a result, but um, on on the the next couple of pages, um, we'll move on. Um, was the leading scorers. And there was um in the yeah Stuart Rimmer was top with twenty eight goals for what for Watford and it, and when I saw that so this is in the first division Stuart Rimmer the top with twenty and I thought I don't remember Stuart Rimmer you think if he scored no. twenty eight goals in the first division you remember then it says twenty seven well at Chester <laughs> so it, it's sort of it's a, it's a little bit of a um, a red herring and it turns out that. The one goal he scored for Watford turned out to be the only goal he ever did score for Watford as well. <laughs> so, in fact, that there was um just back there was um where is it page thirty? There is a Southampton Arsenal game. Um, Alan Shearer scores a hat trick, and gets a nine star rating for Southampton, which 
was was off note. And just something I picked out from that, which I've I've actually got it written down as and excuse my friends, I've got it written down as shite note. Um simply because it it it's just something seven out of the eleven Southampton players' surnames begin with B or C. And I just I, it just looked really strange that seven out of eleven their surnames were B or C and I just thought it's worth pointing out, but it's not really that interesting. There's, there's, there was a time when I think the, my memory is, and your know, memory fades, that all 11 of the West Ham first team began with B or another letter. And I mm. what it was in the era of Trevor Brooking. Yeah. In, in just in one game. The, the other thing that struck me about that guy with the Stuart Rimmer with his one goal for Watford is it's probably a a sort of a nerd's article to be written about blokes who scored only one goal. Yeah. There's a man who scored only one goal for AFC Wimbledon, but, but it was the one that won the first leg of the playoff semi-final in right. Sacrington, but just before he got into the Football League. The only goal he scored in the 89th minute, he'd come on as a sub, but if you want to be remembered, you know, blimey, what a way for your one yeah. goal. I bet there's a whole trawl of those across the leagues yeah. that uh, somebody who's a bit more anarchy than I am could come up with. I think that it was it was it John Sludden we were talking about recently, Tom, where I think he made one appearance for Celtic and it was it was um the Glasgow Cup or something, but it was against Rangers in the final and they won. And you <laughs> think if you're gonna make that one appearance for Celtic or one appearance for Rangers, you want it to be in a no firm final where you win. Then that, that, oh, that's yeah. it. It could be better. It mm. could be better, absolutely. A friend of mine's father played once, and I, I honestly I can't remember. He did play in goal for a Scottish team. I genuinely can't remember. I'll ask him next time I see him. And they lost seven one, I think. Hey. His own appearance in goal. It's not well when you when you're old enough, it doesn't matter anymore. Yeah. It's a good not at the time. Hmm. So just wee result of note there in the Scotland. Martin beat Rangers three two in the Premier Division hmm. uh, that weekend. Uh, Collins, Alexander Turner scoring for Morton. Ian Ferguson and Ian Durant scoring for uh, for Rangers. Uh, and Clybank beat four for three two with a check Charlie hat trick. Get him. Uh, attendance of five hundred and five. I love the videos about. I mean, I loved them. I was much taken by them and. Um, in particular, it reminded me of the names of footballers. I mean, um, what what better name for a footballer than Budgie McGee? Is that right? What a great name. Yeah. There's a guy who played for Newcastle called Albert Stubbins, and if ever there was a northern name of a footballer, <laughs> yeah. Budgie McGee. Ah, treasure that. I think that's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> he came back and got involved again, I think. Is he, was he your manager? Yeah, so uh, so I suppose Budgie McGee played, uh, played with uh, Clay Bank the seniors for a number of years and he was when we come back and were reformed as a junior team he he took over uh as he was player manager the first the first season uh, and he was manager again for about 10 years um Claybank. so i used this a bona fide Claybank Claybank legend with a brilliant name yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. so uh we're moving moving on now so we're getting quite close to the end of the end of the magazine uh now so it's a panini football 88 competition uh, with a Panini Football 88 sticker album there, uh, with Tottenham and Manchester United in the, on the front on the front page. Yeah, my boys collected them. I'm not sure it was for that year, but probably probably subsequent years. It costs a fortune, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. Even with school swaps, it's still it's still a lot of money. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Even now. <laughs> uh, so over the page there, we've got 
Dear Emlyn, on uh, on one side there. So there's some uh, letters going into Emlyn Hughes. So the first one from Duncan Ellis, Button on Trent. Why don't people at Match see sense give you the sack and instead employ somebody like Greavesy, who's a football fan rather than a Liverpool fan? Uh, and Emlyn replies, because Duncan, whoever wrote this column, be it Jimmy Greaves, George Best or Dennis Law, would have to be a Liverpool fan by the way they have played this season. Oh, and by the way, thanks for the vote of confidence. <laughs> yeah. And it will always be the same ghostwriter anyway, won't it? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, of course. Of course. Yeah. Uh, uh, a person who used to work for me told me they, um, they once worked for uh, one of the Red Tops uh, newspapers, Sunday papers, and that there would be, someone would say to them, where did you go on holiday? And they'd say, oh, I don't know, I'm Mallorca. And the next thing they'd be on, they'd be on the problem page would be, I was in holiday in Mallorca recently. And they'd put in a couple of snippets of what she'd said, that yeah. is the problem. And yeah, I don't believe the vast majority of this sort of stuff is A, the, the A is a ghostwriter, and B, the majority of the letters are probably similarly ghostwritten. Yeah. And that stuff. And when we think, to pick out from the hot gossip uh, column there. So reporter Ray Ryan's weekly roundup of all the big transfers and the latest rumours. Um, there's a wee bit there that says, um, on the subject of Tottenham and manager Terry Venables has been checking on the progress of Brighton hotshot Gary Nelson. Yeah, the 27-year-old striker has been a minor sensation in the third division this season. And despite the Seagulls repeatedly turning down offers for Nelson, Venables could pay enough to bring him to North London as a replacement for Clive Allen, who looks set to move abroad at the end of the season. Well, if that was today, I don't know how things were in those days. Um, it nicely harks back to what I was saying about Gary Nelson earlier. But if that was today, um, that would be that would be his agent had planted that there. Mm-hmm. We had one player in particular who was with us five or six years, I think. And um, every time he came up towards the end of his contract, we'd be reading in the Evening Standard that Charlton were watching him or Brentford were watching him. <laughs> and it was his agent, just putting those stories in. So whenever you, whenever I read those things nowadays, I just think, well, I wonder where that story came from. <laughs> uh, the chances of it being true, pretty low. But it, yeah. It, yeah, it fills the pages. You spotted anything there, Andy, on that page? No, you picked out the, the best one for me, which was the Emlyn Hughes getting told off and being rubbish. <laughs> uh, and the facing page is just next week. It's just previewing what's going to be in next week. And it was the uh, Littlewoods Cup final special with Arsenal and Luton team groups. And there's a picture of Mark Lawrence there, the Mark Lawrence interview. Um, and his big tash there in the uh, Liverpool Crown page uh, shirt. Uh, and over on the last page, last page of the magazine is a picture of Lee Dixon, of a, of, of a Arsenal, now better known as a commentator. Or a <laughs> the man commentator. of the moment, eh? Yeah, he's been taking a lot of criticism, and that's just from me. Yeah. Well, I... I... Went onto Twitter last night. Just I, I don't uh, I, I I don't have a. You couldn't identify me on Twitter because I only really go on to follow two or three people. Yeah. But there's a lot of com- well, it's the point I was making earlier about the, how difficult it is to commentate on the game. And yeah, they were they were being slaughtered, weren't they? Him and um, Max, is it Max? Dan Matterface. Matterface. Yeah. Dan Matterface. They were being yeah, slaughtered. Yeah, for, for for my money, there was a point where they just gave up commentating and just became fans. Uh, with, with microphones. Um, yeah, which which I can sort of understand, really, but in many ways, especially at the end, um, it would have been better just letting, letting the camera switch on the crowd singing It's Coming Home and just, <laughs> that's all you needed to do, really. You didn't need the the standard phrases that they feel obliged, well, 
it's so difficult for them to think of something to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were just fans, and I wouldn't mock them for that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we spoke to Paul Mitchell, who's a, com- a Scottish commentator, here, and all the time we talk about being quiet, you know, being silent. You don't always have to say something when you're a commentator. Co- commentator, it's you, you, the best ones know when just to shut up and and let the action speak for itself. And I think there's too many who do think if they're silenced, they're not doing their job. Which is yeah, which is I, I was listening. I was noticing last night. Uh, I'm, to my surprise, I'm not particularly engaged in it. I was um, watching with my family, and I was the quiet one in the corner, just watching it as a game. Uh, wanting England to win, but not you know not fanatical about it. So, so for the record, this this um, for when this goes out, well, the day after the England having beaten Denmark. So, just um, in case England win it, and we think that we're talking about the final, this is about the oh, semi-final. Oh yeah, yeah, it's, it's absolutely. <laughs> yeah, just back to the back to the photograph. Um, something again, I've just noticed is the pinstripes on the shorts. Yeah, which is very unusual. Um, I mean, it looks okay because they aren't that distinctive you know they aren't that obvious um but i think they look okay but the thing you know with lee dixon i like lee dixon um but i just think he's he's not had a great um competition. he's a pundit and co-commentator and i think it's a different skill hmm. yeah. so back in the studio um i, I think he, he adds a fair bit of value not not all of them do yeah but the, the point i was going to make you know is is the commentators need to tell you that the last seven semi-finals have ended up in one nil wins scored with a winner scored by someone's left foot with a sliced shot from the edge of the area, whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, um, they particularly did. I always found it patronising when we we were on television at FC Wimbledon and they'd come around and they'd say, "What, what you know, our players are part time. What do your players do?" Um, you know, and and you'll hear it in the cup commentary when there's the hope of a giant killing. Oh, the milkman is uh, pounding down the wing or whatever. And I think mm. it's such crap. Yeah. yeah. And I was asked before one of the games what our players did. And I said, uh, Brian Cliff used to talk about um, the sort of the local nothing team as Nottingham Pork Butchers. Our manager used to call them Ragas Rangers. And I said, you know, we're not Ragas Rangers. I'm not going to tell you what they do. Uh, I just think you're patronising the players and you're patronising us. We are as professional as we can be, and we, we would rather you treated us like that. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Probably upsetting, but I, I don't care what they do. What I care is what they do on the pitch. Yeah. And they're just filling in space. It, it's, anyway. Again, the rantings of an old fogey. <laughs> oh, we're, we're all ranting about that. Um, just on the background, so the photograph, we think that's Niall Quinn, um, Niall Quinn in the background? Okay. For Arsenal? Yeah. A, a fine player. Um, one of those ones that was always astonishing for the quality of his skill on the ground, mm. given what you assume he is from the size and shape of him. Yeah. And I think it wasn't if he wasn't the first, he's one of the very first who um, gave gave away most of all of his testimonial money. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Sunderland, and I'm sure the press. Well, whether you can believe what you read in the press or not, I don't know. But allegedly, it was a significant getting on for a million quid end up being given to a good cause mm. um, that's a decent man for you I know he made a good life out of football but even then a lot of them were just a cup pocketed it yeah. So good for him, good man Charity partner this season is the Western Bartonshire Community Food Share 
This is a charitable organisation that provides various services and support to the local community, including the following. A school uniform bank, school holiday brunch bags, food provisions, Christmas toy bank, cooking and growing lessons and a baby bank. They provide essential support to the local community in supporting individuals and families and we will be looking to support them in any way we can through the podcast. This will include drives for donations of food, money and support in the form of volunteers. We will also be raising awareness of the group to highlight the work that they do but also to ensure that families and individuals who can benefit from the group are aware of these vital services. You can follow them on the West Dunbartonshire Community Food Share Group on Facebook or westdunbartonshirecommunityfoodshare.co.uk for the website. And that's West Dunbartonshire with an N. You can also donate through our Just Giving page for the charity at justgiving.com forward slash fundraising forward slash shoot the breeze one word. Also keep an eye on our Twitter accounts at shoottb underscore podcast and at Scott's Footy Cards for updates and news on our charity partner. We'd like to say a special thank you to Pete Wiley of the Mighty Wah for the use of the story of the blues in the music for our show. You can catch up with Pete on petewiley.co.uk where you can check out the details of upcoming gigs and new music. We'd also like to thank our producer Diane Jarden for her great work and support on the podcast. Please check out transmissionroom.co.uk where you can book music recording and rehearsal facilities in Clybank. All right, so that's us at the end of the magazine. It's over to you, Andy. Okay. Um, t- what, what's happening with yourself at the moment, Eric? What, what, what you, what else are you, are you working on? Anything else? Um, what, what are you doing with your your spare I, time? I um, although I retired from the CEO role. Just over two years ago, I continued as the chair of the the charity, the FC Wimbledon Foundation, which is normally independent. I mean, you can't really be independent because you're using the club's name and you're closely linked to it. But I stayed on doing that and I retired from that last Monday, mm. uh, just a few days ago, because um, there's a new energy about the place that's come with the stadium opening and with uh, a renewed... Um, number and involvement of volunteers as a consequence of the pandemic. An awful lot of those volunteers are Wimbledon fans, so they've created something called the Don's Local Action Group, basically in a very shorthand, unfair way of describing, they're basically providing um, food packages to people who are struggling in the pandemic. And those those people have effectively been absorbed into the charity. So here we are with a brand new ground um, opening to fans properly for the first time next next month. Um, a huge new amount of energy from people who uh, have got involved with the club indirectly through this Don's Local Action Group. And a new energy because towards the end of building the stadium, we looked like we wouldn't have enough money. And again, a bunch of fans got together. So it feels to me just like it did in 2002. A lot of that energy has come back and... Um, I'm not the right person, I concluded, to um, oversee and, and facilitate the implementation of that energy into the community. So I've stopped doing that. And my role now is um, I made a conscious decision to stay away from the club. The last thing they want is the former chief executive in the back row of the stand with his arms full moderate, muttering it was better in my time. So I, if they ask me questions, I answer them, but I, I don't offer opinions. Yeah. 
and I've um, got a list of things I want to do. I'm going to four or five of my boys' gigs. I'm, I've got, um, I wouldn't call it a bucket list of things I want to do. And um, go and watch some football in other places to which um, Clyde Bank has been added recently. Yeah, added stuff. To the yeah, Tom and I will will take care of you when you when you yeah. for that. Oh, I'll, I'm sure that I will let you know when I'm coming. I'll try and persuade my wife to come, but she's in the process of having three of her four major joints renewed, two hips and a knee, not all one time. Mm. So I'm not sure she'd come, but if she did, then um, yeah, I'd love to. And we have um, one of my boys' godfathers lives um, just west of Glasgow, so it's an excuse to come to Scotland anyway. Right. Okay. Yeah. So where, where can people find your book? Where can we get your book from? Um, just put my name, spelled with a K, E-R-I-K, into any major bookseller. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me phrase this carefully. I prefer the ones who are subject to reasonable rates of UK corporation tax. Yeah, yeah. good um, But you should, if you're willing to buy it, you should buy it from wherever you are. I, don't, I think online is the way to buy nowadays. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you go to um, Pitch Publishing, they've got a list of the different different places yes. you can you can buy it from. It's been a really interesting experience writing a book and seeing, like I got on the inside of the football business, like I've got a little bit on the inside of the music business through uh, proximity, doing the inside of seeing how books get published and how it works. It's been very interesting. Um, that's the only one I'm ever going to write, though. There's nothing else I know anywhere near enough about to write about. It's, um, mm. So it's, uh, I... Describe myself as not an author, but someone who wrote a book. <laughs> There's quite a big difference between them. Yeah. And it's easy. It's easy to write, easier to write what I wrote than to write a novel, yeah. where you've got to invent the characters and locations and the action. I just wrote down what happened. Okay. Listen, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on. I wish you the best with the book, um, with the, the new season. And your thank wife, you. I wish her the best yeah. at health and hopefully yeah. a quick recovery in that. And yeah, Absolutely brilliant having you on. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Yep. No, I've, I've enjoyed it. I thank you for the time. But yeah, listen, listen again. Thank you for joining us. And thank you to Tom for being Tom. Thank you, Andy. And thanks to everyone who has listened to the podcast. Subscribe, share it. You can actually listen uh, on YouTube now as well. Um, we're, we're starting to sh- share more clips, video clips from the show. So follow us on YouTube, subscribe there. Subscribe using your favourite podcast tool, application, whatever. Um, go to the website and support a charity partner. And just enjoy it and give us some feedback. Uh, until the next time. Let's shoot the breeze.